This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. And uh, welcome. My name is Darren Foley. I'm the Outreach Librarian here at Calvi. And on behalf of Dr. Uh, Robert DeVos, who is the Interim Library Director, and the rest of the staff here at Falvey, I'd like to welcome everyone to our Falvey Scholars Awards presentation and reception. Uh, this is a very exciting day for Falvey Memorial Library because uh, for over 10 years now, we've been giving recognition to outstanding undergraduate research that's being done here on campus. And now, at a time when uh, faculty scholarship is uh, increasingly being highlighted, it's nice to see that the, the undergraduate research is also uh, continues to be recognized here on campus. And, and it just so happens that this week, we have uh, the coming together in this glorious expo on campus, a recognition of scholarship and research that's done at Villanova University. We had the Outstanding Faculty Research Award recipient give uh, a talk in the library earlier this week, and so we're delighted to have our outstanding uh, Falvey Scholars undergraduate researchers uh, give their talks this morning uh, prior to their receiving their awards. Uh, but before, with no more ado, I want to uh, introduce someone who needs no introduction, Father Hale Ellis, the Vice President of Academic Affairs. Yeah, that's, that's the line they give to Father Peter. That doesn't belong to me. Thank you. Anyway, I got, I'm going to stand here because I have a quote I want to make, and I, I won't remember the exact words of it. So I'm not sure that. But anyway, first of all, it's a great pleasure uh, for me to, uh, to be here this morning with the Falvey Scholars. And I'm so happy about this annual program because, as, Dr. as Darren had mentioned, that uh, you know, the universities. Uh, move to a, a national research university really, you know, has as an inter as a essential component, you know, the undergraduate research uh, endeavors as well, and so this is what we really want to highlight. Although it has been going on uh, for some time, you know, we haven't really glommed onto it as something that we want to highlight, and this is all the more important as uh, as the university is really uh, advancing and not only adding to its national stature but also trying to augment and uh, also, uh, you know, make it, make uh, research a, a, a essential component, not at the compromise of any teaching or uh, undergraduate uh, emphasis that we've always had, but as a complement to it. So uh, this is a very exciting uh, program that you have. Uh, <clears throat> I also, I think it's especially gratifying that the award the awards recognize the role of research, and this was across the university, the arts, the sciences, uh, engineering, nursing, and business, although I understand that uh, business is not represented here today. That's unfortunate. That's something that needs to be remedied. Jane, you know, it's up to you to do that. Uh, okay. <clears throat> but uh, for, for what is research, but really it's learning that reinforces classroom knowledge. And give students the opportunity to apply the knowledge that they learn in the classroom. So that's really the fundamental aspect and the fundamental importance, I think, of research. But we also know that research is hard work, and, uh, <clears throat> but that the excitement of discovery, uh, discovering certainly new knowledge, makes it worth it. But despite the hard work that is involved with research, it also has risks. And what is the biggest risk? The risk 
is that uh, we will be subject to evaluation and critique for our research. Uh, and we have numerous examples of people who have taken risks for the sake of discovery and knowledge. And there is also the risk of failure. You know? And this is something that, that's a human condition that we all have to deal with. And so <clears throat> as we are, I want to do here at this uh, Catholic Augustinian University, we go back to St. Augustine again. And uh, St. <clears throat> Augustine was certainly one of those individuals who took risks. And uh, he searched for truth and wisdom, but he added a very important uh, dimension as well. And that was that truth was not only the object of knowledge, but he added another dimension, that uh, truth was, should be underlined by love. And love is, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, he is you know, called the doctor of the doctor of love, in a sense, that underlines everything that he had done. So it's not only truth and wisdom, but truth and wisdom underlined by love. And so there's a story that when he finished his monumental book on the Trinity, <clears throat> he anticipated criticism. And he knew that some readers would question what he wrote, but he was confident enough, and I think humble enough, to be open to his critics and to be open to change. And so at the end of his book, he writes this. This is what I wanted to quote. He begins, he said, let the reader, where we are equally confident, stride on with me. Where we are equally puzzled, pause to investigate with me. Where he finds himself in error, come to my side. Where he finds me erring, call me to his side. So we may keep to the path in love as we fare on toward him whose face is ever to be sought. So no matter what our stage in life, we can learn, I think, from Augustus's openness to learning. So again, congratulations to you all. Thank you, Father Ellis. Um, hopefully, I, I just wanted to highlight for you the fact that uh, we have up here the list of when the presentations are going to be, but we would hope that you would all stay for the entire thing because we have Father Peter coming at the very end to congratulate all of you. So uh, we would appreciate that if, if at all possible. We don't want to interfere with classes or other things, of course, but, um, but we invite you to stay for the whole time and we have refreshments. Um, in addition to the refreshments, I should mention, uh, the restrooms um, may or may not be functioning right outside the doors here. So uh, if you see uh, Regina Duffy, who I'd like to publicly thank, our events manager here in Falby Library, uh, for helping us to put together this spectacular event. Uh, she is standing in the back with a black blazer on. And if you need help of any kind or directions, please see her. Okay. So well, let's get to our first presentation. and. Uh, each student will be introduced by uh, one of their um, uh, faculty mentors, and the first faculty mentor I'd like to call up is Dr. Uh, Helena Hanko.
So I've uh, had the pleasure of teaching Jessica um, since her freshman year when I first had her in um, a spring semester ACS class. And in that class, she actually uh, read one of the books that she's writing about in this thesis, Handful of Dust. And I remember at the time, many of the students found this text by Evelyn Waugh to be so profoundly depressing that I have not taught it ever again. <laughs> um, but Jessica clearly saw something else in it. Um, and through the last four years, um, I've had her in many classes. Um, and the work on the Catholic novel, the work on um, kind of fiction in general, I think has brought her back to some of the questions that, that I've kind of walked through those four years with her doing. Um, and it's kind of wonderful for me to see that transformation over the four years. Um, I could see a love of literature, a love of learning just burgeoning when she was a freshman. And at this point, um, sort of I have before me a, a sort of well-formed, enthusiastic, no one has enthusiasm like, enthusiasm like Jess Swoboda, um, and kind of disciplined um, and eager student. Um, and I'm thrilled to say she'll be going on to graduate school next year to pursue these ideas further at Boston College. We're so, we're so thrilled with that and proud of you. Um, and yes, yeah, so it's with great, great sort of uh, joy and, and enthusiasm <laughs> that I'd uh, like to present to you Jess Swoboda. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Tomko, for the introduction. Thank you to Dr. Quigley for nominating me for this award. And thank you to everyone at Falvey Memorial Library for this award and for organizing this event. My deepest thanks. I'm really grateful to be here today to speak to you on a project I've been working on this whole year entitled Wolf and Wall, Blurring the Distinction Between the Religious and the Secular. I've been fortunate to work with two wonderful advisors, Dr. Helena Tomko from the Department of Humanities and Dr. Megan Quigley from the Department of English. So why study wolf law and secularization? Why pair a Catholic convert with a presumed atheist? Um, so these questions from this project were emerging from two of my favorite classes I've taken at Villanova, Catholic novel and modern British novel. And it was in modern British novel on a final exam when we were asked the question, is God dead in the modern novel? And I was intrigued. I was like, so is God dead in the modern novel? And what's going on with this? And then later that year, I took this architecture and religion in America course and we're commenting on, is this a sacred space? What makes it sacred? What goes into making this experience in this space sacred? And I was intrigued because I was wondering, so what does include a religious experience? How do we determine what's going on and how it's going on? And so I wanted to pursue that in the modern novel to see if critics are claiming that God is dead in the modern novel. Is this really an accurate statement? So that's where the question for this thesis emerged. So setting the context, what was the climate like of the 20th century? So the early 20th century witnessed a shift in the understanding of the function and structure of the Western world, society, and the individual as it moved away from a unified perspective to one based on individual interpretations. They thought that the past inadequately represented societal structures and social ideologies as they came to focus intensely on originality rather than tradition and these characterizations of the aspects of the world. So society's transition to a modern secular civilization with all these changes that are 
undergoing in the 20th century, produced a form of life that was sustained by new and previously unknown identities that impacted all areas of life, including literature. So my thesis is questioning the persistence of tradition and its frameworks in the 20th century in the wake of secularization as represented in the modern novel. And I'm asking questions such as, does this new modern conception of the self transform artistic aims? How do novelists represent the changed world in their fiction? If 20th century experienced an increasingly secularized existence, are novels completely secular and should critics accept them as such? Do authors account for religious experience or provide new interpretations of these experiences for a society undergoing the demise of Christianity? My two main theoretical people that I'm focusing on with this project are post-secular philosopher Charles Taylor and Pericles Lewis, who's this expert on literary modernism and is exploring a literary study of this question in his work, Religious Experience in the Modernist Novel. So what my thesis is doing is examining the portrayal, the critique, and the response to secularization and the presumed disenchantment of the world in the work of 20th century authors Virginia Woolf and Evelyn Law. I'm making the claim that the barrier between the secular and the religious is not as distinct or as definitive as one would assume in the 20th century in the Western world. So like I said earlier, critics are assuming that this modern novel is disowning anything that alludes to the transcendental or includes anything that alludes to the transcendental. However, recent scholarship has emerged, and one of the main articles I draw on is by Gabrielle McIntyre, which is called Notes Toward Thinking the Sacred in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And what she's doing is she's using To the Lighthouse, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, to analyze how the text spiritually inflicted idioms, and what I mean by that is phrases such as divine goodness, heavenly bliss, they're, quote, resisting the atheism Wolf otherwise pronounces by engaging in an energetic return to a fundamental preoccupation with the difficult and often taboo terrain of the sacred, even as she reveals a nervous resistance to such sacralizing, unquote. And how the narrator's evident desire to believe also stages a failure to achieve this belief. So you're seeing this movement between the religious and the non-religious. And what I mean is, so in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, one of the characters exclaims, we are in the hands of the Lord. And immediately it's followed by a statement that bears weight such as, why did I just say that? That was a silly thing to say. So discussing the representation of religious experience in the modern no novel more broadly, Gabrielle McIntyre is claiming that presumed secular early 20th century literature retains vestiges of religious symbols. So the big claims of this thesis. First, I'm exposing and examining Lewis, I'm exposing, uh, I'm expanding on Lewis and McIntyre's approaches to offer insights into the displacement of religious experience and how Wolf and Waugh do this. Um, secondly, I'm seeing if Wolf and Waugh provide new interpretations of the sacred for, under, for a generation undergoing the demise of Christianity. And I'm ultimately arguing that the movement between the religious and the non-religious in the modern novel blurs, meaning it diminishes and erases any sharp distinction between the secular and the religious. So to set the framework for this thesis, uh, we need to explore Charles Taylor's conception of the modern individual and juxtaposing his, juxtaposing his two terms, buffered self and porous self. So this porous self, what's happening is Charles Taylor, he's exploring the implications of a moral, spiritual, and political modernity. And he's thinking about how the individual thinks about the self in relation to how things have come to exist and how they're being. And so how he comes through to these terms is he's building on this understanding of, the, of modernity in which the secular is building on the belief that the lower 
or the immanent or secular order only exists and that humans are inventing the higher order, the transcendent order. He's, he's saying that people are distinctly separating the higher from the lower level and are claiming independence for the immanent. So there's a clear division between the two orders, between the immanent and the transcendent, the secular and the religious. So what's happening is the poorest self was of the previously enchanted world, and the self is vulnerable, meaning you're open to the transcendent, you're able to imagine yourself in this framework where, you're, where outside influences are influencing you and you're open to this, and that the boundaries between the self and other, between the self and the transcendent are fuzzy and that they're blurring together. So this is suggesting various types of possession, and as Taylor writes, various types of possession all the way from full taking over of the person as with a medium to various kinds of domination by or a partial fusion with a spirit or God. Now with the buffered self, it's the opposite of the poor self, meaning that it's invulnerable. This person's living in a purely imminent world. And there's the clear boundary between the imminent and the transcendent. And you're existing solely in the imminent and your ultimate purpose is stemming from the self. You're seen as master from the self. You're very much turned inward. And so Taylor writes that you're invulnerable as master of the meanings that things have for it. So what I would like to do today is talk about the epigraph for my thesis, which is really serving as the center point. And it's this quote from Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. So what's going on in this quote, before I start getting into the analysis of it, is these two characters are at lunch, Cordelia and Charles. And Cordelia, she's talking about her brother's spiral into alcoholism, which is also marking his shift away from the Catholic faith. So I'm making the claim that there's a literary example of this near impossibility of a complete severing between the imminent and the transcendent is nowhere more apparent than in this quote. So what's going on is, when while Cordelia is suggesting that chaos defines the state of their family, because what's happening in her family is everyone's flying away from the Catholic faith as quickly and as far away as they possibly can. But she's saying that order will soon be restored because one can never completely escape transcendental influence. So her vision is providing an alternative to the modern secular worldview. So this quote is as follows. Anyhow, the family haven't been very constant, have they? There's him gone and Sebastian gone and Julia gone, but God won't let them go for long, you know. Father Brown said something like, I caught him, the thief, with an unseen hook and an invisible line, which is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world and still to bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. So even in a modern buffered world, Cordelia is seeing spiritual forces at work and sees that the buffered individual is nonetheless receptive to the transcendental. She suggests that traces of tradition remain and that an individual cannot simply escape the foundation that has already been laid, even if an individual runs to the ends of the world. This foundation provides rootedness, suggesting that no matter how far they seek to enter a buffered life, a life away from anything transcendental, or anything outside of the self that could influence her, she remains attached to an unseen hook in an invisible line. She seems to imply that if one were not attached to this unseen hook, an individual's detachment from it would provoke individual deterioration. So, what does this all mean? The individual can travel to the ends of the world, nearly entering into a purely imminent world, but as soon as the individual is about to step over the edge, a twitch upon the thread will bring her back to a world where the secular and the religious are blurred and where wholeness of the individual can be achieved. All the individuals need is a small tug, as Gabrielle McIntyre says, a vestige of that religious moment to save them from stepping over the ends of the world.
So in my thesis, the, I'm taking that, the idea stemming from that twitch upon the thread quote and looking at Evelyn Waugh's A Handful of Dust, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, and Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. From this and from those themes that are emerging from the twitch upon the thread quote, I'm structuring my thesis as follows. So I'm first examining Charles Taylor's philosophical exploration of the rise of secularization to suggest that his terms buffered and porous uh, are providing this limited account of human nature in relation to religious experience, but nonetheless are giving way to this creation of this term in the middle, which I use, which I coined filtered in my thesis. So this is retaining those experiences of the buffered self while also accounting for the twitches, those influences that are existing outside. Then I'm moving into walls, a handful of dust to demonstrate the diminishment and meaninglessness an individual and society endure when they fail to blend in some way the traditional past with the undeniable changes occurring in the modern present. In Wolf's To the Lighthouse, I'm arguing that she's providing a new account of human nature that retains vestiges of religious moments scholars claim the modern era discounts. And then in Brideshead Revisited, which is the conclusion section of this thesis, I'm showing how the perpetual presence of the twitch upon the thread inevitably re-enchants the world. So I'm concluding by asking the question, does 20th century fiction present a new understanding of a semi-enchanted existence? So what I'd like to do here is quickly sketch out the bride's head part because it leads into what I'm ultimately concluding in my thesis. So in these two quotes, in the first one, you're seeing this character, Charles Ryder, he's fighting against the twitch as seen in his movements between praying to God, so please God, make him accept your forgiveness, to an expression of, oh no, which with the, oh God, don't let him do that. However, the twitch nonetheless overcomes his resistance to any sacralizing, and ultimately Charles' resistance becomes acceptance as he claims upon this character's deathbed. Um, this character, he receives the last sacrament upon his deathbed, and Charles is witnessing this, and he's saying that his death is proving his, her father died proving both sides right in the dispute. So I'm saying that what happens with this is that this moment alone, this, this last line saying proving both sides right in the dispute, priest and doctor, this moment alone shows the persistence of religious moments as well as the possibility of aspects of the traditional past to coexist with the modern rational present and the success in doing so. So the claims I'm ultimately making are, in Brideshead Revisit, and I'm saying that Waugh seems to respond to a handful of dust insofar as he shows the success and flourishing individuals find in an existence that accounts for tradition and the undeniable changes that modernity is bringing forth in the world. In Brideshead Revisited, the characters develop command over each framework, and because of this control are able to establish stability in the modern age. Waugh's characters in a handful of dust lack any such command, and instead possess much resistance to looking beyond the self, which brings forth diminishment of the self in an existence plagued by meaninglessness. Lily, who's the character I focus on into the lighthouse, she neither possesses the resistance the characters in a handful of dust exhibit, nor is close to religious sensibility like they are. She instead attains a sense of awareness that Charles and Julia, the two characters in Brideshead Revisited I focus on, what they exhibit following their responses to these twitches. So Lily, and then the characters in Brideshead who I talk about, all re-enter a world influenced and impacted by things that exist beyond the self and where they are caught with a twitch, with an unseen hook in an invisible line that is long enough to let them wander to the ends of the world and still to bring them back with a twitch upon the thread. So today I've been asked to speak about the findings and the contents of my research. 
and I think it's impossible to have such a discussion without speaking about the two people who have made this project possible, Dr. Tomko and Dr. Quigley. I think that the relationship you build with your advisors is one of the most important and rewarding aspects of the whole research experience because you're learning from people who you have the utmost respect and admiration for, and but yet they also have so much belief and faith in you as a student and they're willing to go above and beyond to ensure that not just your project is a success, but that you're developing as a student as you're conducting this project. So they both have provided pointed and directed feedback on drafts and they and proposed ideas, which has ensured progress, and they're meticulous in explaining their feedback, which has enabled me to immediately enhance and nuance my argument of, or reading of a specific text. They're invested and interested in my work, which has inspired me to be that much more invested and interested in my project's progress. Dr. Quigley, she's opened my eyes to the world of the modern novel, turned me into a Wolfian, taught me the art of close readings and challenged my writing and thinking and the way I organize my essays in ways I've never before been challenged. So thank you, Dr. Quigley. And Dr. Tomko, I've been fortunate to know since my freshman year and have been even more fortunate to be mentored by her ever since. She helped me to see how much we can come to understand about the world, ourselves, and society through literature, and she brought out this passion in me for this area of study and helped me find excitement and joy in what I'm doing. She's inspired me to pursue these passions, especially through research, and has truly been there every step of the way, guiding me and helping me to grow in my pursuit of them. So thank you, Dr. Tomko. And together, both Dr. Tomko and Dr. Quigley have made this a worthwhile project to complete and undertake, and one that I'm sad to see come to an end for now. So thank you, everyone. If there's any questions, I'm happy to answer. Yes. Okay, so I've, um, thinking about this chorus and buffer, mm -hmm. um, and just, um, I don't know, like, this makes some sense, but um, think about the words and what they mean mm -hmm. and kind of the connotation. Mm -hmm. And that chorus is kind of a natural quality, right? and buffer is an inflection. Mm -hmm. So is, is there, you know, is there something to that in terms of? I think there's still aspects of the buffered self that are worth keeping because they're focusing on the private experience and saying how influential that is in your development as a person. So how I'm taking this in the project, as I'm saying, and this is most especially apparent into the lighthouse with Lily Briscoe, how she is open to the outside. So she's open to observing other people and taking that observation and using it to influence her being. But what's happening is it's filtering through the self, and she's going off in her own mind, in her own space, and coming to terms with that understanding. So for her, that private experience, that buffered moment is equally as important as that chorus moment. So that's where I'm coming with the term filtered, because what Lily's doing from those moments is she's taking, say, the love that she's observing of the couple. Um, it's moving through her and it's being distilled and filtered through her as she's saying in To the Lighthouse. And it's showing on this painting that she's making. So I'm saying that she's open to the outside, but then yet that experience is moving through her in that own private, within her own mind. And then it's showing again on this public display. Mm -hmm. um, it's incredibly interesting uh, about the fact that you used a twitch of the thread 
as a way of analyzing the other two works. Um, the, well, the one comment that I was going to make is I, I remember once uh, people asked for uh, what is our favorite band book, and the one that I had recommended was Private. Oh, okay. And I had uh, people ask me, you know, well, how could you recommend that? Because my background's in theology, and mm. it's, it seems to be an anti-theological book sort of thing. And I said, well, then you don't see the invisible hand of God mm -hmm. as a character in the book itself. So, so I congratulate you on, on using that as, as a framework for, for doing your analysis. My question is, so you say that you're a Wolfian, what does that mean, especially since you didn't use wolf to understand law, you used law to understand wolfism. Mm -hmm. so. I think for me it just means really appreciating Virginia Woolf as an author and how, what goes into analyzing her fiction and coming to understand her more and where she fits within the 20th century and the modern era more broadly. And that's an ongoing question, I think. And for now, I don't have an answer to that, to be honest. Um, I am most interested in the 20th century authors, and religion and literature is a big part of that. So what authors I add to this, I'm not sure yet, but that's something I've been thinking about. Mm. Well, thank you, everyone. Okay, now I'd like to uh, invite to the podium uh, Dr. Amy Egler. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, first of all, I just want to say congratulations to all of the Favio Award winners. Um, I feel like we're really in the presence of Villanova's best here today, and so congratulations, everyone. This is definitely um, a distinction. Uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce Nick Ader today. Um, so there's many things I could say about Nick, but I think I only have like a minute or two, so I let him get to his talk. Um, but basically, uh, one way to describe Nick would be through his accomplishments. So he is the recipient of the Dodd Rise Scholarship to study in Germany, and he did that the summer before his junior year. Um, and he, I believe you got a publication out of that work. Uh, and then he was the recipient of a Ver Fellowship to study in my lab the following summer. And again, that was a very productive summer. And he is also the recipient of the Goldwater Fellowship, nationally prestigious scholarship. And not the least, he's the recipient of the Marshall fellowship to study abroad. He'll be at studying in Cambridge in the fall, beginning his PhD, and he's additionally the recipient of the NIH Marshall Fellowship, so he'll be completing 
his last two years of his PhD at the NIH. So he's already got that all set up. <laughs> um, Nick, uh, some other uh, standout accomplishments of Nick are that he has now, he's the first author of a manuscript that just came back yesterday with very favorable reviews from toxicology writers. So um, first author of the manuscript. And um, Nick is also very involved um, with humanitarian work. Uh, I think every Friday morning, Nick, did you get up this morning? I believe he got up this morning again. Not today. Not today. Okay. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> Practically every Friday morning, Nick gets up at 5 a.m., I think, um, and goes downtown and runs with people that are experiencing homelessness. And this is a way of empowering them um, to get back on their feet, which is what the name of the organization is. So Nick is truly an exceptional individual. Nick, it's been my pleasure to call you my mentee and my friends, and I've learned much from you. So with that, I will let you get started. Well, thank you, Dr. Egler. Uh, that was a very generous and kind um, introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, it's just been an absolute pleasure um, and very rewarding experience to work with Dr. Egler in her lab, to have her as a mentor. Um, those many things that she listed um, were not the work of me alone, their work of many people, many of which are in this room right now. Um, and I just, uh, I could not have done without them. And I'm very excited to talk to you today about some of the cool science that uh, Dr. Egler and I have worked on um, in her lab and kind of how that uh, has come together. And two separate projects, but how they're you know, the same, uh, along the same interest. And it's as the title suggests, focusing on cell health. We'll get into exactly what I mean by cell health. And good science, which is correlating with this picture here, you might recognize as a, an antibody. I'll get into why there's an antibody up there, we normally we think of as immunity. Um, and also sea sponges, which you know, two things you don't often think as related. Um, but I'll get into how that all comes together. So why do we look at cell health? What is cell health when we say we look at that? It's important to remember that you are your cells, that cells, as this diagram suggests, make up everything in your body, everything really that's inside of you either is a cell uh, that's living or was a cell. Um, and there are many different types of cells um, that make up the body, and all of them have very complicated um, systems within themselves. They're the smallest living unit uh, of the smallest uh, unit of life that's inside your body. So they have things that can go wrong too. So when your cells get sick, you get sick. So it's important to focus on cellular health because cellular health is really just human health at a smaller level. Many of the diseases that we associate with the, the human body, like cancer or Alzheimer's, have their roots in the cell. And when something goes wrong in the cell, we see that on you know, the organismal scale. So by focusing on cell health, we try and attack these problems at their core and kind of even before they're developing, kind of bolster uh, the body's defenses at the cellular level. And in the Egler lab, we focus on one specific pathway of cell defense, one way the cell has to kind of keep things under control and deal with stress. And that's the NRF2 pathway. The NRF2 pathway, as it, um, I said, deals with stress. So when you're stressed, your cells get stressed out too. 
they have a lot of things to be stressed about. It might not be writing a final paper, but a lot of things from the outside and even in the inside of the body, which is a very chaotic environment, can force cells to deal with different types of stress. And I just want to give a brief overview of this pathway and why it's important. So I know biology is guilty of having a lot of uh, abbreviations and names, so I'll try and make it as clear as possible. Um, first, direct your attention to these two black lines here. That's representative of DNA. So you think of that helical, double helical structure. These would be the double helixes, just shown very simplistically. And on, that, on the DNA, kind of in the ATGC sequence, we find certain sequences that are called antioxidant response elements, or an ARE. And as the name suggests, in response to oxidative stress, we have antioxidants. So you might hear about you can eat antioxidants that are in certain foods. And the body has ways of dealing with oxidative stress, too. It has its own antioxidants. And that's where the antioxidant response element comes in. So under normal conditions, where your body isn't stressed, your cells are not stressed, this pathway's off. There's nothing to deal with. But when the cell's under stress, when you're under stress, the pathway turns on. And this is where NRF2 comes in. NRF2 is allowed to accumulate when you're under stress. And when there's a lot of NRF2 around, the protein comes in. And a word about NRF2, what exactly is it? What is a protein? Its name isn't very telling, because unfortunately its name just reflects more or less how it was discovered. But NRF2 is a protein, and your body has thousands of proteins, and proteins are the interesting things in the body. The DNA, you know, the, the double black lines there kind of reflect, you know, it's boring. It doesn't leave the nucleus <laughs> of the cell. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't digest your food. It doesn't build your muscles. That's what proteins do. So the proteins, while they're encoded by the DNA, they're the interesting things, and they can move around. And that's what NRF2 does when it accumulates under stress conditions and comes in. Proteins do a lot of different things. NRF2 protein is responsible for telling the body to make other proteins. So if the cell is under stress, NRF2 comes in and binds the antioxidant response element and says, we need to use this DNA right here to make cellular defense proteins. So we make hundreds and hundreds of cellular defense proteins that are involved in regulating the stresses from metabolism, from diseases. And again, while NRF2 isn't directly involved in regulating these um, stressors, this oxidative stress, all sorts of stresses, it turns on many other uh, uh, proteins that, are, that do this. And just how important is the NRF2 pathway? Well, if we have a knockout mouse there, and that's a, a little diagram of a mouse, and a knockout mouse is where we can just take um, a gene or the protein that's encoded by that gene and get rid of it. And if we get rid of NRF2, you can see it crossed out over there, we get rid of NRF2 in a knockout mouse, and you compare it against a normal mouse in two separate cages, you can't really tell the difference at first. They're happy eating their mouse pellets, they're okay. But as soon as you subject the uh, knockout mouse that doesn't have NRF2 to stresses, be it some um, bacteria from a, a mild disease like a mild cold, or just do some exercise, they can't recover as quickly. They can't get back to the normal um, healthy mouse running around in the cage as quickly as the normal mouse can. It can't deal with being under stress. So that happens to us as well. If the NRF2 pathway isn't working as well, we don't have these cellular defense proteins to the same levels that we normally would have. We can't mediate stress effectively. And 
the body does a pretty good job of knowing when to turn on the pathway, knowing when to turn on the NR2 pathway, knowing when to deal with its own stress. But it's not perfect, and in cases of disease or as we age, the pathway is less efficient. So one of the main um, areas of focus with this pathway is how do you turn it on? Um, and it turns out that a lot of natural products, a lot of the foods that we eat, can turn on this pathway and increase human health. So that's been the focus for a while. How do we turn it on? EGCG, a compound that's found in green tea, will activate NRF2. Xanthohumol, which is found in the hops that are used in beer. Sulforaphane, which is found in broccoli sprouts. Sulforaphane is really the poster child of NRF2 activators. It's used in many, it's, it's um, the subject of many clinical trials, and it's an incredibly potent activator. And resveratrol, uh, which are found in the grapes that are used in red wine. And there are many more. I just uh, use some of the more recognizable products, things that we eat, that have NRF2 activators. And also these, all of these compounds are used in clinical, uh, tri clinical trials for chronic diseases. So many diseases and many compounds that are important in activating NRF2. And again, the focus has been looking at new activators, new potent activators, and new types of structures, compounds that will activate NRF2. And so we're left with kind of this is where we're getting into the good science part of the talk. How do we know that a compound activates NRF2? How do we know that the first step is accumulation of NRF2? So it combines that ARE sequence like I showed. How do we know that we have more NRF2? This is where we get into the um, cell and molecular biology techniques that have been developed to study this. And again, we want to know how much NRF2 is in the cell because more NRF2 generally correlates with a better treatment. So how do we figure out how much NRF2 we have? Cells are really tiny. Proteins are even tinier. It's hard to figure that out. You can't even look under the microscope. You can see the cell, but you can't see its number of proteins, and certainly not one protein. Protein gel is one way that we can separate out uh, proteins in the cells. You know, the best way we have to do that. In a protein gel, we have many of these in the lab. And what you do is you take your cells that you've been growing in culture. We have a, a, a place to do, grow up our cells. After the treatment, we take the cells. We open up their membranes so all of their protein comes out. So it's kind of like a mosh of proteins. And then we load it into the gel. And we do that because proteins, when we separate them out in this gel, they'll separate out by size. So what we get are called bands. And it'll look something like this, where smaller proteins can go through this gel, like a gel-like substance, and the smaller proteins can get through easily. They can go down. So smaller proteins are at the bottom of the gel, and the larger proteins are at the top. And then when you stain the gel, and in this case we stained for uh, using a stain that detects all proteins, you see all these little bands where proteins run. And this looks pretty crazy here. There's a lot of bands, and there are multiple different samples here. This gel can run with multiple different samples. You can't really pick out one protein of interest there. That's, that's the, the limitations of this technique. You, you have the stain, but it looks at all proteins. So we need a way to just see the protein of interest. In our case, just see NRF2. And this is where... Um, a powerful, and it's getting, it's, it's an old, old technique now, um, Western blotting comes into play. And this is a way of using antibodies, one of the body's own systems, to detect 
uh, a protein. So let me walk you through what's going on here. If we have, if we've run our protein gel, we've separated out our proteins by size, so we have something that would look like this if we were just saying it. it's on the gel. If we transfer that something more permanent, no longer a jello substance, kind of like a blot, which is really just like a piece of paper, that blot would be right here. And the target protein, again, all the proteins are still there. This target protein has been blown up just um, for, for looking at. The target protein is what we're interested in. Just like the body can recognize really specific diseases, for example, when you're given the flu vaccine, your body builds up antibodies against a particular flu virus, we can build up antibodies against a specific protein. So we can build up antibodies in another organism that'll target the human NRF2 protein. That's the primary antibody there. We have all of our proteins on this blot, and we expose them to an antibody against NRF2, that's the primary antibody. It will only bind, at least in theory, to the protein of interest. So now we've got an antibody that's bound to the protein, which is good, except how do we see the antibody? So we kind of take something we can't see and we still can't see it. And this might seem complicated, but actually it makes a lot of sense, is that say that we developed this antibody, we uh, took some NRF2 protein, introduced it to a rabbit, the rabbit made up lots of antibodies against NRF2. If you make up an antibody against a rabbit protein, and this would be a protein made in a rabbit, you have an antibody against that, that antibody will only bind to your first antibody, your primary antibody. And that's, we only have two antibodies here. But what happens then is that that second antibody that you have has something on it that can be detected. It has something that will generate color. So the end result is that we have two antibodies, one that has something that will generate color, and only your target protein, your protein of interest, will show up on the gel with a very specific antibody. So then what I'm trying to allude to here is that this primary antibody is really important. If you have a good primary antibody, if it only detects your protein of interest, then it will bind tightly and you'll have uh, the, secondary the secondary antibody will bind tightly to that and you'll have a clear image. You'll know what's going on. And it's important that we know what's going on because this is one way that we judge if a compound's a good activator of a system. And this is not just something that's used in uh, studying NRF2. Biologists everywhere use Western blotting. Antibodies now are just so widespread and many companies make them. And the levels of to what degree the antibody is made and the quality control can vary. And the focus of one of our uh, of our recent manuscript that Dr. Egler mentioned it was looking at this antibody for NRF2 and question, questioning really something you would think is very basic. Does it work? Is what we're seeing actually the NRF2 protein? Because if it is, that's great. We can use it to study NRF2. If it's not, then we're not learning anything about what we think we're learning about. So I'm just going to walk you through a few parts of, uh, of one of our figures that show that um, shows you what we were looking at and then what we concluded. So we got a lot of things going on here. Uh, just briefly, I kind of focus up an A up here. This is a western blot. We have multiple lanes. So each lane, as I mentioned, is a different sample. On the end, we just have a marker, which runs at a specific weight. Remember how I said that larger proteins run up top, smaller proteins run in the bottom? 
the marker tells you about how far something, um, how far a standard protein will run, and then you can compare it to that. This beta tubulin that we have here is what's called a, a loading control. Basically, ensures that you loaded the same amount of sample in each well. Um, if we have multiple different treatment samples, and as you can see here, it's even throughout, so we can make judgments on our protein of interest, which is NRF2. And this EP1808Y is an antibody made by a particular company, and it's supposed to detect NRF2. I think they had some formatting snafus. Um, but up here, where we have sulforaphane, that's what the SFN stands for, that's why I mentioned before is that really potent activator of NRF2. So this is where it all comes together. We have three cell lines, three different types of human cells. And that should be, a, instead of an asterisk, that should be a minus. In these lanes here, we have no treatment with sulforaphane, no treatment with the NRF2 activator. We wouldn't expect any NRF2 accumulation. And then we have treatment with sulforaphane, where we would expect NRF2 accumulation. And this is what we were seeing when we probed with this antibody that was supposed to detect NRF2, this EP1808Y. And the only thing you really see is in this particular cell line called HEPG2. And we see two fairly bright bands compared to everything else. But you don't see that increase that we were expecting to see. If we treat with sulforaphane there, you'd expect it to, the levels to go up. And if you adjust the brightness on this plot, and that's what's done down here, it's the same thing, just the brightness adjusted, it's an incredibly bright band in, that hep, in the HEPG2, and in the other two cell types, we see that normal increase in NRF2 that the field has seen um, and that was accepted, that with no treatment, very low levels, but with treatment, we see an increase in the protein level. And again, with the HEPG2, you just see this very bright band. So I forgot I had some arrows to point out those bright bands in case it wasn't bright enough. What we were expecting to see was something like what's going on with detection with this antibody. This is the same blot. We just used a different antibody to detect it. So we have three different antibodies going on here. The H300, which is made by a different company, in all three of the cell lines, you can see that the increase when treatment with sulforaphane, you increase levels of NRF2. So we weren't sure if this was just a really good antibody, that it was just detecting really low levels of NRF2, and even here we couldn't see uh, the increase, that it was just detecting so well, or if there was something else going on. We were, the fact that it was so bright, and that they marketed on their website that it was so bright, and that was the only band on the blot, led us to first believe that, oh, it's just a really good antibody. And through the rest of the experiments you know, that we published in our manuscript, and I'll be happy to um, run you through those if you're interested, definitively showed that it's not NRF2. That this band that is detected in this particular cell line isn't NRF2. And the takeaways here isn't just that we have one antibody that isn't detecting NRF2. It's important to it's important not just for your own results to make sure that you're doing things right, but it's important for the field to make sure that you have good reporting. And that was something that we weren't seeing. We were seeing people using many different antibodies as we looked through, and they weren't showing you know, where they got the antibodies from or what experiments use what antibodies if they use multiple different antibodies in, our, in their paper. And because I showed you those, those primary antibodies are so important, they let you know that you're actually seeing what you're seeing about a particular system. The fact that one this particular antibody doesn't detect 
the protein that's supposed to attack in this particular cell line. And that many authors are being a little bit lax or could be just be better about reporting things was uh, concerning for us. So that was our focus. And just to highlight um, how the library uh, helped do that is that we were able to study many different methods of antibody reporting. This required extensive literature searches, many different papers using many of the research databases that Thalby provides. And the EndNote software provided for, by Thalby Library, which is a way to manage all of these citations, was really instrumental in keeping all of that together. So I also just want to run through kind of the, the second part of my project, which was actually doing something with the methods of research. So looking at um, these NRF2 activators and seeing if they are actually activators. And so before doing all of these tests, before doing what I mentioned restroom blotting and other exams, we have to have some sort of indication that a compound, you know, it might just look like a little powder, actually might activate NRF2 and actually might help cell, um, cell health. One way to do that is look at the structure of the compound. Every compound, every chemical has a structure. So, for example, here we have the compound TBQ, and this is its structure here. And I bring up its structure only to do a comparison. This is a known activator, and this structure here is what's called a quinone. It's known to activate NRF2. This is a compound called DA16 that is extracted from sea sponges, a particular sea sponge off the South China Sea that was provided to us by a collaborator in China. Now, if you notice, they share a similar structure. It's called equinome, and that's, um, it's known in TBQ to activate NRF2, and we wanted to look at if it activated in, uh, if the structure activated, uh, if the quinone structure in DA16 also activated NRF2. So the idea is similar structure indicates similar activity. This is when we start doing some tests to figure out, does it activate, and how good of an activator is it? Could this be used in treatments? And could it make quinones more important? So how do we do that? One method is um, Western blotting. And I do have some Western blotting data to show you quickly. But the other technique that's really cool is a called what we call an ARE assay. And the field calls it an ARE assay. Um, and what, if you think back earlier, what I mentioned is that under stress conditions, when NRF2 is allowed to accumulate and bind, and we make more cellular defense proteins, we can kind of hijack that system when we're working with our cells in culture and make it so that instead of all these cellular defense proteins in our little cells, we express something called firefly luciferase. Firefly luciferase is what makes those fireflies glow. Luciferase, as its name suggests, based on Lucifer Lightbringer, is what allows us to detect the system. It's all about being able to detect something. So if we have an, um, an effective treatment that increases levels of NRF2 and then allows NRF2 to bind and make more of what it's supposed to make. In this case, we'll get more light. So more light means a more effective compound. And so that's what I want to show you over here. We've got three compounds at many at a couple different concentrations, increasing concentrations on the bottom. And these compounds are represented by the different colors. Um, I've shown the structures of what I mentioned before, TBQ, and DA16, those quinone molecules. And we've also got sulforaphane, which I mentioned was used pretty much everywhere when we're looking at NRF2. It's the poster child for activation. So just like with Western blotting, where we're not supposed to see a lot uh, when we're looking at conditions without treatment, that's what we see here. 
we're not stimulating the pathway, we don't see a lot of activation. We don't see a lot of light, um, and that's what we've normalized to. That's a, a value of 1 there for all the treatments. As we increase, again, so fluorophane, that poster child, shoots up real fast. Um, that green over there, it's a very good activator of NRF2. If we look at the known quinone activator of NRF2, the blue TBQ, it increases and gets to about 10-fold activation at 20 micromolar. But compared to this new quinone, DA16, it's blown out of the water. So we see here that even at 5 micromolar and certainly up to 20 micromolar, DA16 is four times um, more potent than uh, TBQ. So this was really exciting for us to see. And again, to highlight how the library was helpful here, the ARE assay is used throughout the literature in studying NRF2. So it was um, a clear choice for what we were doing and also know what uh, compounds other people were using as far as TBQ and its uh, ability to activate NRF2. And also that there aren't a lot of potent or highly potent quinone activators of NRF2. So this guy is kind of alone uh, in levels, uh, in uh, the molecules that look like it to activate NRF2. So that was exciting for us to see. And again, we also looked at this by Western blot. After talking about Western blot for a while, I had to show you Western blot um, for this. You can see here, it's untreated. Again, this is what we expect to see. Low level, no, or really low levels of NRF2. Uh, our control is fine. The loading control is equal throughout. And then for sulforaphane at higher concentrations, it increases. The If we want to get into the, the 20 micromolar, that's a whole other story, but we'll... we'll We'll leave that one out for now. Um, TBQ also increases. DA16, it might be hard to tell from there, it increases, but not as much as you would expect, um, which is something that is interesting. So there is accumulation, and we confirm that NRF2 is, in, is certainly involved and is central, but it might not be um, just accumulation that's going on. Um, there might be other reasons why uh, DA16 is so potent, because it does look like you have more accumulation with TBQ. So that's something we're still investigating. So in conclusion, what we're, what we're working on in the Egwe lab is kind of using good science to study NRF2. So again, as I mentioned before, the good science comes in, this in particular was in the form of antibodies. So good science needs good antibodies. If you don't have a good primary antibody, you don't know what you're looking at. And you need good reporting. So even if you have the best antibody in the world, if you don't tell someone what you're using, or more importantly, if you don't tell someone what experiment in your paper you used it in, it's really hard to recreate your results or understand what's going on. And again, where sea sponges come in, this is just one of the applications of what we can do with this good science. So we present a new activator that's potent for NRF2, and more importantly, helps focus the search for new activators and kind of highlights the, the quinone molecule as a uh, some place to look in uh, natural products that has previously been unexplored. So that's kind of what we're doing. Uh, if you have any questions, I'll be happy to take them. Is it possible that our cells are, could create a protein or an antibody 
Yeah, so the cells, cells are really good at dealing with stuff. The NRF2 pathway is just one way that cells deal with stress. And with things like Alzheimer's, although the exact um, causes are still a little bit under debate, one of the things associated with Alzheimer's is that proteins kind of start misfolding and form these aggregates that are just really, in some ways, they're just so large and not doing anything that they screw up the cell. And the cell has ways to deal with that and break up those aggregates. They have um, the, the, the proteasome, which is basically the garbage can of the cell, will eat up all of those aggregates. So the cell has lots of ways of doing that. It's just that there's a reason that you don't develop Alzheimer's when you're a toddler. It's something that, as the body is subjected to many um, stresses and over time, it's something that the, the mechanism, just like the NRF2 pathway, kind of decreases in its effectiveness over time the cell's ability to deal with all stresses decreases in effectiveness. So that's one of the ways we try and strengthen it. So that's what a lot of treatments look at. Um, another reason why, you do, why it's much rarer for children to get cancer than for you know, an um, end-of-life individual. So it's, it has very much to do with keeping the body healthy over time. Yes? Yes. Yes. So that's, uh, NRF2 is interesting. Um, that's something that has been seen um, really since NRF2 was first probed for. You get two bands. And there's, there's um, the idea is that the higher band is phosphorylated NRF2. And that makes it run differently, because um, normally you wouldn't expect phosphorylation to create such a big difference. And sometimes it shows up as one band with certain antibodies. And sometimes one band will increase and the other one does not, as you can kind of see um, here. And the jury's still out on that one. There's, there's ideas. But. What company? <laughs> <laughs> we really didn't want to be a, a company passion. Uh, the source uh, um, was Avcam. Um, uh, and it was funny, we actually presented this at a conference in Seattle. And we didn't realize until we were in transit there that there was a representative of Avcam that was there. And so, of course, we invited him over to look at our poster. And um, he, was, he was very knowledgeable, but he didn't really have a, a good explanation. So, yeah. That's actually the antibody that we used here. Um, yes, cell signaling antibody. Um, the other two that we used mostly in our paper to kind of show that the Avcam antibody wasn't working were from Santa Cruz. Um, one, of, one of their antibodies was good polyclonal. The other one was a not so good polyclonal. We, we talked about. And so I can't like relative polymorphism because because mm -hmm. slide before. Yeah. So um, first of all, uh, with the DA sixteen, mm -hmm. you go from well back to cell four thing. Right? Yeah. Increase the dosage. It goes up linearly. Right. But when you go from uh, ten micromolar to DA sixteen. Yeah. Wow, that's a huge jump. There seem yeah from what we've seen in other experiments, there seems to be kind of a critical point that it reaches between 10 and 20. Um, and as of yet, we're not quite sure what to attribute that to. Um, as It's puzzling that there's not as much NF2 accumulation as we see. So maybe at those higher molarities, it could be something else that's going on. Do you think it has anything to do with the Western process? And why it wasn't as, like? It might be that we're not um, able to detect uh, the changes in accumulation um, as um, you know, as you know, in a blot, you get the, the image can be fuzzy, so sometimes it can't be as precise as you'd like it to be. 
It might also be that there's other things going on that aren't just simple NRF2 accumulation, or that at something happens between 20, 10 and 20 micromolars that isn't necessary for sulforaphane. Um, actually, generation of reactive oxygen species, or ROS, so oxygen species can also be uh, an activator of NRF2 because they, you know, they simulate cellular stress. And a lot of compounds that we're finding, that's another project in our lab, is that how reactive oxygen species play into NRF2 activation. That could be what's going on here. We're not sure of that. Yes? Is it likely that the cells are reacting to the genome as a stressor? Or is it, is it involved in, in the, the, the pathway in, in a less immediate way? So as in that the, the quinone itself is what's causing the stress and not necessarily. Um, that's a good question, um, and what we're, we've looked at is quinones aren't often used as treatments, what will be used, because they're generally considered to be toxic, um, but what, we'll, what we look at then is reducing the quinone to its hydroquinone form, and that's where, you know, I mentioned the structure of TBQ is there. TBQ, you don't really find it in that many places, but its reduced form, TBHQ, is in everything. It's in Doritos. It's a preservative for everything. So it's very safe, and it is an activator. And once it's <laughs> once it once the the yeah once the reduced form gets in the cell, it can be the target where there is oxidative stress. It can be oxidated, and that'd be more of a targeted um, approach. So that's something we're looking at. One of the problems is that we can't take what we've gotten from our collaborator and reduce it because it's such a small amount that we're getting. Um, we're exploring working with uh, Dr. Agros in the chemistry department to make more of the compound and then reduce that so we can um, compare. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to invite uh, to introduce student uh, Dr. Aaron Wimhoff. So uh, I'm happy here to uh, introduce uh, Joey Schott. Joey's going to present on some work he's been doing here over the last uh, year or so. Um, before I get to Joey, um, I want to make it clear that there's actually a lot of folks involved in uh, mentoring Joey. It's not only me. In fact, uh, some other folks probably could even be up here uh, more deservedly than me even presenting him. I was more of an administrator in a lot of cases, and, and, but I have helped nurture Joey as far as uh, uh, when it comes to, like, say, technical writing and, and so forth. Um, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge Dr. Al Ortega, who's here. Uh, Dr. Ortega uh, was Joey's first uh, project advisor. Uh, Joey did some experimental test rigs set up in Dr. Ortega's lab back, I believe it was sophomore year. And then uh, since then, he has been on this project he'll present today related to energy-efficient data centers. And uh, in that, there were two other faculty that were involved. One is uh, Dr. Joseph Pigeon for mathematics, 
and Dr. Cameron Filotti, who was actually the person who worked most closely with Joey. Uh, Dr. Filotti is an adjunct faculty in ME, but now he's actually a full-time professor at Widener. So you could make the argument that not only is this project multi-college, because you have mathematics working with engineering, but it's also multi-university, because you have Widener working with Villanova. Um, now, on to Joey. Um, so if this, to call Joey ambitious is probably the biggest understatement uh, I could ever say. I've never met anyone as ambitious as him. Uh, just to give you a feel as to how involved he is and active he is. Uh, first off, I have to throw out there, he's a varsity athlete. He's on the water polo team. That aside, uh, within the last two weeks, if my memory serves me clear, Joey first presented at a on-campus conference for the Villanova Center for Advancement Sustainability and Engineering. And then the next day he presented at an American Society of Engineering Education conference. And then this week he did a presentation at the, an, a sustainability engineering conference in Pittsburgh. Then he presented at an ASMR, American Society of Mechanical Engineers conference at Temple. And now today he's doing Sigma Xi and a Falvik Scholar presentation, of course. Meanwhile, finishing up a paper that has been accepted to an, an inter, one of the top international conferences in electronics cooling. On top of that, he has, uh, see here, he's presented at Sigma Xi a couple times now. He won the undergraduate engineering section uh, at the online Sigma Xi Student Research Showcase. He has uh, presented at uh, uh, what we call industry advisory board meetings for a uh, research consortium that uh, Dr. Ortega is actually the site director for. It's called uh, Energy Smart Electronic Systems, it's ES2. It's an NSF-funded industry university cooperative research center. He has also presented at the at IMECI 2014, which is the world's largest under, uh, our mechanical engineering uh, conference. Uh, several thousand people, and there's an undergraduate research symposium there. And Joey, this is an award he had, he beat out all the other undergraduate poster presenters in the nation. And this includes all the big boys like MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, and so forth. And he's doing all this. And oh, by the way, he's leaving in a couple days. He's going to go up to present at another meeting near Princeton at the next IB meeting. So throughout all this, he doesn't have a car. <laughs> so it's amazing how he's done all this. Um, Joey, we're really proud of you. Uh, it's been an honor working with you. And uh, you're going to definitely go places once you graduate. Joseph Shaw, and I'll be presenting my research over this year. And it'll be on load capacity and thermal efficiency optimization of a research data center using computational modeling. So my introduction is I really want to cover what a data center really is. A data center is a large group of network computer servers typically used by organizations to essentially power the internet for remote storage, processing, or distribution of large amounts of data. <clears throat> All major corporations in the United States that have an online presence need data centers in order to handle the operations an actual internet activity that they that our corporations carry out. So data centers are huge. I mean, there's 100,000 square foot facilities and are a big part of Amazon, Google, Apple, and all the major corporations in America. So my introduction is I really want to put this in context. So in 2007, 1.5% of the electricity con consumption in the United States was used for data centers. And of that 1.5%, one third to one half was used for the cooling. 
Now, the most commonly cooled by air that's delivered to electronic equipment uh, using a centralized cooling system, so large refrigeration units that are stored in an actual data center room. If you look at the previous picture, this is what a typical data center would actually look like. So these are where the servers are held that actually carry out the online processes. And then you can't really see in this, but there are cooling units that are typically stored and actually pushed there into the server units. So they're actually currently one of the largest uh, consumers and one of the fastest growing. And so they're really a key part of the infrastructure in the United States. And in the recent years, there's been a push to increase the energy efficiency. Uh, spearheaded by Dr. Ortega at Villanova. And so the Villanova Steelworker Research Center is a research data center that's going to be built through an industry university cooperative in Princeton, New Jersey. <clears throat> and the main goal, <clears throat> the main goal will be to allow for the testing of improved energy efficient cooling strategies. So really the tool that I used in this was computational fluid dynamics. And so that is essentially uses the flu, uh, field of fluid mechanics in order to analyze thermal and fluid flow problems using numerical <coughs> methods. And so here are some schematics of actual data centers. And you can see these are streamlines of actually how the flow interacts in the data center room. You can tell from the coloring that just how different the thermal distribution can be within a data center. And this picture is a little more clear. You can see the racks. These are actually the refrigeration units on the side. And then these are the units that are actually being heated up and cooled. Uh, it can actually successfully be applied to data centers. It's been used for uh, a while, and um, in, especially in industry, it's not as heavily used in industry as it should be, but it's definitely been applied. And you can see the flow patterns here is a great picture of how the air actually goes from the refrigeration units into the actual server cabinets in the room. So data centers, as I was saying, that they, could, they consumed 91 billion kilowatt hours of electricity and emitted directly 100 million metric tons of CO2 through the actual electricity that needs to be produced to power them. And it's projected to increase to 140 to 200 billion kilowatts by the year 2020. So really, there is no, there's more need now than ever to really look at how can we more efficiently cool them, especially with the growing concern for energy sustainability. Uh, my motivation was to actually optimize a system design of a research data center to, to look at both low capacity and thermal efficiency using the CFD. Now, as I mentioned, vSource, as it's called an acronym, uh, will actually be built, and the goal is to actually produce a design for it that can uh, test these energy efficient strategies while also being itself thermally energy efficient. And so I looked at different cooling strategies that I'll get into, such as perimeter, in-row, overhead, or hybrid cooling, and then containment, both hot aisle and cold aisle, and then I looked at the layout and load distribution. So the objective of the research goals were to produce a data center that had optimal operating conditions and an optimal design layout while still meeting thermal constraints. So the minimization function that I really looked at overall, the big goal, was to minimize the total energy consumed for cooling while still meeting a thermal constraint. Now my design variables were, as I mentioned, we have refrigeration units that are present in the data center. Now I was looking at the airflow rate because that's how, there's really only two parameters that I was able to actually modify in order to produce it, an energy efficient design. And the chiller supply temperature set point. So that determines how essentially the temperature at which the air will enter into the servers. And so with these two, I said that these server racks where the air is actually been putting into, I said a maximum inlet temperature of 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that's based on the literature review that was a temperature that seemed suitable. And then I wanted to investigate the effects of containment. So as I mentioned, it's motivated to improve the energy efficiency of data centers, but we actually need to use a software called Six Sigma Room that will allow us to test all of our strategies and hot aisle and cold aisle containment effectively with computational fluid dynamics. 
And then, as I mentioned, we want to analyze the response under different conditions that we're going to put it under, including different layouts, different designs in the data center, and different fan speed modulation and chilled water set point. Now, the better characterization of hot aisle and cold aisle containment techniques was an important point of this to actually see how efficient they can be made and make a distinction between what is more effective, at least in our design, hot aisle or cold aisle containment. So containment. Uh, this is kind of one of the big uh, design factors we looked at. Uh, it's the enclosures that are essentially used to control the travel path of flow. So as you can see, these are the refrigeration units. And the actual floor is, there's ducting under the floor. The floor is, an, you know, so the air is actually pumped from the refrigeration unit under the floor. And then it's brought into these units through something called perforated tiles. And once the air is brought in, it's sucked through the fans of these servers and actually released into the ambient environment. And so once it's released in the ambient environment, it uh, will mix with hot and cold air streams. So containment is really predicated on not allowing the air to mix from hot air and cold air streams because you spent so much energy to actually cool the air that you really don't want to lose that efficiency. Uh, the only problem with them is they do require a rack layout and height uniformity and actually require sort of difficult to install and remove. Uh, so first I'm going to cover hot aisle, con hot aisle containment, which is the first thing we looked at. So in this, so we have a essentially raised floor, and the air is actually pushed under. Then it is brought up through perforated tiles on the outside of the racks, and then the server fans themselves actually suck the air in. This is called the cold aisle. And then it is brought through, and this hot air is essentially in between the racks. Hot aisle tries to contain the hot air and actually duct it out into the ceiling. And once that's done, you're actually, you've actually you're not allowing the hot air to mix. You're minimizing the amount of mixing that actually goes on within the data center room. Cold aisle containment. Uh, now, perforated uh, tiles are now on the inside between the racks, and the cold air is actually brought in there, and there's a, you know, a roof here, and it's actually contained, and then brought through the server fans, and then the hot air is released into the environment and gradually actually brought in back into the ceiling. Um, so we analyzed both these uh, effects in ours. Now, cold aisle containment, one of the big parts of it is um, it doesn't directly alter, alter the power usage effectiveness, which is really the popular measure nowadays of energy efficiency in the data center. Because you're not, by installing containment, you're not directly reducing the amount of electricity you have. But however, you've actually reduced the amount of cooling you actually need because you reduced the amount of inlet temperatures. And so you're at, therefore, you need to provide less cooling. That's where you actually improve your energy efficiency. So as I mentioned, it prevents the mixing of different airflow paths and actually damage the IT equipment that can result from raised inlet temperatures. Now, containment can help reduce inlet temperatures, and I will show you through this. So as I mentioned, we had hot aisle containment. And I just want to show a schematic of when you don't have hot aisle containment, see how raised the temperatures are. And then when you actually employed hot aisle containment, you see how much the temperatures actually decrease. So therefore, depending on what you wanted to write and run your data center at, you could therefore provide less cooling and then improve your energy efficiency. Um, so high density zones were another thing we employed, and it's very popular nowadays in industry, which is to put high power server racks clustered in one zone. That allows for higher computing area, power per unit area. The problem with that is it requires extra cooling because you do have an increased IT load. And we actually accomplish additional cooling through the use of in-row coolers, which go in between the server racks and actually directly pump air into them. Um, so different, we had different ways of uh, investigation. So at first we built the two distinct uh, V-source design configurations. And then the problem we really had was we had to look at the removal of a lot of errors. Whenever you do a CFD model, you, you have to go error by error and actually determine what is useful and what you actually need to remove. 
And then we actually looked at optimization, optimizing the model through our design variables, which were the total supply flow rate and chiller supply temperature. And we said that no maximum inlet temperature greater than 85 degrees. And then continue, we looked at different things. Uh, this is actually a schematic that shows a little bit more clearly. Uh, so first we started by creating the actual baseline model and modifying it to what we actually needed. And then performing our CFD simulations and selecting the most efficient containment strategy. From there we created a CFD based results matrix, which I'll get into later, and actually performed uh, statistical analysis in order to actually choose the most optimal operating point and system characteristics. So we produced six models, and I'll just briefly cover them. We have a lot to cover. So hot oil containment and cold oil containment. Uh, we only really looked at uh, full, partial, and none. So full, as I'll show you on our next, uh, my schematic, uh, was when you contain every single set of uh, cabinets. Partial was when you only contain the high-density ones. And then none is when you kept the hot aisle and cold aisle the same, but you actually removed the containment enclosures. Uh, best practices employed to create models uh, looked at containment leakage. Uh, employment equipment gaps and supply tile locations. So what I mean by that is uh, when this model was created, created, it was idealized and idealized models, though somewhat useful, it's more likely, it's more useful to actually create something closer to industry standards. So uh, I was actually able to collaborate with a company called Future Facilities. They actually produced the software itself and kind of collaborate with them to see what are reasonable uh, industry standards for equipment leakage, equipment gaps, containment leakage, uh, set point ranges, flow ranges, and supply tile locations. So it's actually able to get some input into what actual data center designers actually use in their models. Uh, this is actually our model. Um, so these are the refrigeration units. This is the hot aisle, the cold aisle. And so in partial containment, we only contain these. This is the actual containment enclosure. It's very hard to get a good photo, but uh, um, these were only contained and these were not, and then all the containment enclosures actually removed with the no portion, no uh, containment. Uh, so as you can see, these are just different uh, design parameters. So we had uh, 550 kilowatts of total IT load, and then uh, we had 16 in-row coolers, which you can see right here. These are the gray bars. And uh, this is just an inlet temperature layout, so just kind of showing you how it actually went about. So we ran the model and then actually looked at what our cabinet inlet temperature layout actually was. And using that, you can see that we had elevated temperatures within these models, though we expected at first that we'd have it in the um, high density zones, but we found that we actually had to modify the arrangements to actually have more effective cooling. Uh, we thought that was due to possibly pressure uh, imbalance within the system. So I'm gonna look at our results. Um, so CFD results. Uh, the first part of actually required us to look at the thermal efficiency of the, of the uh, system. And so as you can see from these graphs, uh, these are different uh, containment areas. And the first one was we varied our flow rate. We increased our flow rate and said, that, what is its effect on maximum inlet temperature? Now, you would expect it to decrease, but we were actually looking for what is the most efficient at decreasing the maximum inlet temperature. As you can see, full hot aisle containment and full, full cold aisle containment were the only ones that really gave us reasonable ranges under our maximum inlet temperature. And then, so we kind of narrowed it down to those two based on that parameter. But then we actually looked at increasing our supply side control temperature. So that essentially, that has a direct correlation to how, what temperature the air is fed into the servers at. And so you'd expect as you increase that, that you would get increased elevated maximum inlet temperatures, as we did. And this one, we only really found that full hot containment was effective at still staying under the range when you increased your full, your supply side control temperature. And so based on that, we decided to proceed with our full hot aisle containment arrangement. 
And the biggest problem I really had was the software itself did not really allow me to calculate my power consumption directly. So I had to look into the literature for effective ways that I could get reasonable numbers for this. And so um, based on our total power we looked at was the, not the total power of the facility itself, but the total power of the cooling system. The total power of the facility includes the IT load, but that's fixed for our trials, so it really only made sense to look at what the variable power would be. So our fan power consumption was calculated using something called the fan affinity laws uh, to calculate the power when you move from state to state. The software itself gave us the initial power at various flow rates and states. And then we used a correlation developed by a research laboratory at Hewlett-Packard um, in order to calculate our, our coefficient of performance, actually calculate the chiller power directly using our supply temperature. So next we used on the optimization. And the problem I really had was I had not really had a great statistical background, so I really needed to approach someone who specialized in something along design of experiments or numerical methods. Uh, so I uh, collaborated with uh, Dr. Joseph Pigeon of the math department and um, was really beneficial in looking uh, at regression analysis. So we, we looked at different design of experiment methods, factorial analysis and regression analysis to actually produce something called predictive equations. Um, so based on the so once we had decided we want our full hot oil containment to actually be our configuration, we ran selected number of trials. And this is important because that actually allowed us to get uh, data that we could import into the statistical software and produce our actual equations from. And the benefit of this is that uh, data centers are usually run by facilities or IT departments and corporations, so they may not necessarily be as adept at using computational fluid dynamics or at least running large amount of trials. Uh, I had the benefit of working for a research center that has a very uh, powerful server that allowed me to run many, many, many trials. Um, but part of that methodology that I showed you in the previous graph was really designed so that people who kind of want, maybe not a cookie cutter method, but a very simple methodology could follow that really minimizes the amount of actual trials, investigation, experimentally that you need to do, could actually employ and get similar results to optimize their own data center. Uh, so the total system power consumption, so based on your total flow rate, and your supply temperature, you can calculate the total power. And based on your maximum server inlet temperature, you can calculate that based on the total flow rate as well as the supply temperature. Now this uh, graph is a little bit difficult to understand. And before I say that, the R-squared R values, which determine how useful for prediction your model actually is, were very good, um, very, very good for both. So that was promising. Uh, this model essentially bans the amount of efficient power you would actually have as well as the, uh, so our constraint for maximum inlet temperature was we didn't want anything greater than 85, but at 85 degrees Fahrenheit, you will have the most efficient energy uh, data center configuration because you're providing just enough cooling to get you to where you want to be. And so at this point, if you look at 85, we found our optimal operating point was very close to essentially the extremum of the plot, but not quite. And then we found it intersected a, at 218 kilowatt hours, so we were able to find that's a very it's much lower than we expected uh, to be at. So we're actually able to uh, um, computationally optimize the system itself. And the viable operating range is important because this is actually a surface. It's called a response surface, but for all intensive purposes, it made sense to plot as an overlay contour plot. So we can see where the contour lines actually intersected in order to get our optimal operating point. The viable operating range is really a uh, a range that shows that you're still in an energy efficient zone. You're maybe not as energy efficient as you could be, but you're in a zone that's acceptable that you are saving a good amount of electricity. Uh, this is useful because a lot of uh, data center operators will not necessarily be comfortable running it at such a elevated uh, flow rate or um, supply temperature set point. 
So for them, this is an arrangement they can really go by, that they can run their data center at where it will be efficient, but you know, uh, in data centers, oftentimes people have to go inside, so they might not necessarily want it at elevated temperatures. Data centers are, if you've ever been inside, very, very loud, so they might not necessarily want it at the flow rate where it can be very loud. Uh, so this is kind of our findings. This is just uh, our optimal operating point. So our total supply flow rate is around 95,000 CFM. We found the chilled water set point of around 7 degrees Fahrenheit. And our total power consumption was 218 kilowatts. And 85 degrees Fahrenheit was obviously the most efficient maximum temperature you could be at. Uh, so we found that they both, in, those, both the factors of supply temperature and flow rate impact the power, uh, total power consumption directly but that the chilled water set point has a much greater effect on data center thermal energy efficiency. And then um, we found to have a greater effect on thermal efficiency and the power consumption, and that the total supply flow was not as effective at it was not as effective thermally in the thermal efficiency of the data center, but it was only found to slightly change the power consumption in comparison to the actual cell high temperature. We found that the method we used statistically was useful and uh, could be developed for design and optimization of a data center, and that we found that the optimal separating point for improved energy efficiency using first law analysis. Uh, my conclusions are that we found that containment was beneficial and that hot object containment was more beneficial, but that could be situational. As I said, cold object containment requires um, uniform server rack height, so that might not necessarily be something you have available in your actual facility. And then we found that CFD programs like Six Sigma Room uh, can be effectively used to find optimal operating points for data center operators. And hybrid cooling was found to be effective, uh, especially with the implementation of in-row coolers to actually handling high-density IT zones of a data center. Uh, acknowledgements. Uh, this is probably the most important part, I feel like. Uh, there's so many, so many people. Uh, first, Dr. Al Ortega, uh, Alfonso Ortega, who was really gave me my shot in uh, the, my first uh, research experience at this university. Uh, the hardest working guy I know, he's always uh, always working, always working. Um, I can't tell you how many times he came in on Saturdays just to help me with my research and uh, really get it to where it ha happened. He got me my first publication and um, allow, allowed me to stay and work in the research data center. I mean, sorry, work in his research center and uh, really maximize the potential I had at this university. Um, Next would be uh, Dr. Cameron Filotti. Uh, he's, as Dr. Lumhoff mentioned, he's an adjunct professor who really spearheaded uh, this proposal and uh, was responsible for us getting the, the NSF grant. And uh, Dr. Lumhoff, uh, I think he sold himself a little short. He's really done a lot. He was helpful, uh, especially in the statistical part when uh, kind of guiding me towards where I should probably go, and especially in uh, kind of making sure that we got our research out there and really uh, got it noticed. Um, he also was one to nominate me for this award, so thank you very much. And Dr. Joseph Pigeon, he's teaching a class right now, but he was uh, really helpful in uh, kind of uh, teaching me uh, what I really needed to know in terms of statistical analysis. We actually embarked the semester on an independent study I'm doing now and kind of been further into these methods, which has been really useful. Um, and he found a way to kind of expand on, I guess, the statistical knowledge that an engineer should have, and especially when entering a research type environment. And continuing the acknowledgments. So. <laughs> Uh, the National Science Foundation, they provide the RU grant that really spearheaded this, at least the start of this research, and the NSF IUCRC in Energy Smart Electronic Systems, which is what Dr. Uh, Ortega is the site director for, that really provided such a great environment and so many resources in order to get the research off the ground, and uh, it's definitely uh, grateful, very grateful for that. Uh, 
These are just the people I collaborated with from future facilities. And then, of course, the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships uh, for just being so great. And uh, all three of the people here from the, that I can see from here were just instrumental in everything. Uh, Jane was uh, just great in terms of uh, she was the one who supported me on my first conference I went to and really helpful and especially uh, taking care of things over the summer and kind of exposing me to the resources. Kurt, who I'm dealing with now, is great. And uh, Catherine, uh, thank you very much for all your help in getting the award. And really appreciate it. And obviously the library, um, the subject guides were very helpful in terms of getting my references and actually providing me with the tools I needed. Uh, and Alfred Fry was here. He was helpful in uh, teaching me how to use Zotero, which was very useful in actually producing uh, my references and works cited for my publications, uh, which are was a very big help and uh, especially even when I used that he was still willing to look it over and make sure it was correct and kind of teach me the basics of actually properly citing and referencing research. So I'm definitely very grateful for that. And that's it. Any questions? There's a lot to go through. So I'm sorry. <laughs> a lot to go through. Uh, yeah. So I guess two questions are pretty general. Um, so the, the people who operate these data centers, is it, say I have data centers, uh, you know, Google servers there, yeah. is it owned by Google or is there a, a, another company that would own and manage data centers that you're working with? So who do you have to deal with when you're saying who you have to control? It's actually, well, it depends. It's actually funny you mentioned that. There are, uh, it's actually growing, it's called like co-load, co-location. Uh, it's very popular because some companies, especially in tech software, if you're a small tech company and your forte is really not data centers, it really doesn't make sense to commit millions of dollars to focus, spend a million dollars on something that really is in your background. You know, if you're a software company, what are you doing in hardware, I guess? So that's co-location, that's very popular. There's companies uh, all around like that. Um, Rackspace, I believe, is one of the big ones. So that's what it does. Google does their own data centers. Big firms like Microsoft, they, they're large enough that they can really afford to do it and it makes sense for them. Companies like Apple, they don't really feel comfortable necessarily with other people operating their things, especially Google when it comes to privacy and stuff. That's the concern you kind of give up. So they operate it themselves. And then, so how much, it's very, very general question, is the heating up of electronics and servers an inescapable fact? Is that something that, like, in the next 50 years overcoming, or is that just oh. the law of thermodynamics, things heat up when they're electronics? Well, they heat up. They heat up. It's becoming even a bigger issue. You know, as electronics get smaller and smaller, I'm sure you've picked up your iPhone one time. It's really hot. You know, it's a... Uh, um, as you know, they're you know focusing on how you know, how many transistors can they get on a chip and things like that. It's going to increase, and um, I don't think really enough's being done on it. But there are definitely strides being made to look at it more. But it's just a fact. Um, oftentimes, I think on your computer, less than ten dollars is spent on like the actual like cooling, the thermal design of like how to cool your laptop. So it's it's really not the focus because of you know, modern manufacturing and production techniques and design. But um, I think pretty soon people will really have to be confronted with uh, using it. Oh, yeah. Uh, you graduate this year? Yes, yes. What are you doing after graduation? Um, Postgraduate research is what it's looking like. So that's, uh, that's, that's the something goal. Something new. Yeah, something new. Um, though I still have a, I was going to put in a future work slide, but I think my pre presentation was a little long winded. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, so uh, uh, we're still like doing a lot more. We're doing it more on like a smaller data center model now, but it's still going, it's going very well. In the, working with Kurt on some things, so hopefully we'll figure out some stuff for next year. Uh, yeah, Dr. Ortega. Joey, let me ask you a question. So you showed these results from this computational approach, yeah. computational yeah. fluid dynamics, but it is computational. Yeah. And it looks real. 
right? Especially to the untrained eye. But is it real? Results? Uh, Believable? Well, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I think on my figure I showed, um, I should have made it a little more clear, that you do need experimental valida validation of these results. Uh, that's why I mentioned the uh, vSource data center will be built in Princeton, New Jersey, and that will actually be used for the validation, hopefully, of these results. Um, you need it. Unfortunately, it's like pretty, that's a big reason this is being built, because it's pretty difficult to go into data center facility and start setting up experiments and sensors. This <laughs> <laughs> doesn't fly too quickly, but... Uh, She was admitted to the School of Nurse, College of Nursing as a presidential scholar. She's an active ambassador for the College of Nursing. She's active in the Student Nurses Association of Pennsylvania. She has acted as a tutor for underclassmen in chemistry, anatomy, and physiology. And she has accepted a position in the neonatal intensive care unit at Lehigh Valley University Health System in July. What Katie took a critical look at was direct-to-consumer home genetic test kits. These can be purchased online or at pharmacies. And what she did was take a critical look of what is uh, the reality of these if they are um, scientifically sound, and what issues do they open up um, for all of us that can purchase them. And her results were published in Clinical Advisor. Thank you. Let's see if I can find mine. So thank you, Dr. Capriotti, for the introduction. And as she said, my name is Katie Klein, and I'm a senior nursing student. And it has been an absolute pleasure over, I guess, the past two years working with Dr. Capriotti on our research um, regarding direct-to-consumer genetic testing and the implications that these test kits have for healthcare providers. So over the course of this research project, we investigated a couple of different things. First, we looked at the purpose of these new direct-to-consumer genetic test kits and the methods used to determine the results of genetic risks. In addition, we researched the literature and found critiques on the result on the validity and reliability of these genetic test kits. And last, we look at the implications of these genetic test kits for both the consumers and healthcare providers. So first things first, what is direct-to-consumer genetic testing? This form of genetic testing is also known as home genetic testing, meaning that these test kits, like Dr. Capriotti said, are sold both online and in pharmacies directly to consumers so they can purchase them completely on their own um, and obtain the results of their genetic risks without really ever leaving their home. So people don't need to consult their primary care provi providers at all. They don't need a prescription. They can just go to their pharmacy and pick up one of these test kits or open up their laptop, go on their iPhone, go on their iPad, and access the internet and order one of these kits and have them shipped directly to their house. So just like Nike, uh, markets there are sporting good products to athletes. There's numerous companies that market these uh, genetic test kits to consumers. These companies include 23andMe, Navigenics, Decode, and Pathway Genomics. And across the board, these kits are priced pretty reasonably at about $99 per kit. So also like Nike uses um, catchy phrases like just do it to get people to buy their products, these test kits use similar marketing tactics to get people to buy these kits. 
They use buzz phrases like knowledge is power and empower the individual. They even go as far as saying every individual has the right to know their genetic susceptibilities to better manage their personal health and wellness. And who doesn't want that? Let me ask you this question. Who here uses WebMD? Anybody? <laughs> myself. <laughs> I know. Well, myself included. Because of the internet, we have access to an unlimited amount of medical information. And we love to use this information to play doctor for ourselves. I know you do it. I do it myself. And the, the thing is, is these, these genetic test kits serve as this new medical toy for us to allow us to play doctor and have this direct hand in, our, in determining our own genetic susceptibility to disease. It gives us this perceived um, control over our own, own health, and that's why these genetic test kits are so popular. So what do these direct-to-consumer genetic test kits do? Well, according to the companies that are selling them, these genetic test kits can determine ancestry and paternity, genetic susceptibility to disease, and individual drug response. But what can these kits actually do? According to the research, these kits can actually determine ancestry and paternity, and they can actually determine pharmacologic response um, agents, to pharmacologic response to pharmacologic agents. However, it is questionable whether or not these direct-to-consumer genetic test kits can actually determine one's susceptibility to diseases like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, things of that nature. And yet, these kits were put on the market claiming to do exactly that, and people had um, access to them, like I said, without even consulting a primary care doctor. So another major appeal of the, these genetic test kits is the, ease of, uh, is the ease of obtaining the sample. All you have to do is obtain a saliva sample or a cheek swab sample, which is easy enough for anybody, even people without a medical background, to do on their own from their home. So if you decide that you want to purchase one of these kits, like Dr. Capriotti brought in, all you have to do is take out your laptop and log online and um, plug in the address for one of the, kit, the sites that sell these kits, like 23andMe.com. You create an account, you log in, you add the, account, the, the, the kit to your cart, you pay your $99 and have it shipped directly to your house. Once you receive the kit, these kits have detailed instructions on how to obtain the sample and then how to send it back to the company and do all of that. So all you have to do is take your cheek swab, send in your saliva, send it back to the company, and then await your results, and it's that easy. So once these companies receive the, or the sample from their consumers, the method they use to decipher genetic composition is called genome-wide association studies. But before I tell you what a genome-wide association study is, I will first tell you what it is not. It is not a method used to analyze specific individual gene mutations that confer risk of disease. It, is, it does not isolate or analyze individual genes, and it does not take into account environmental factors. Rather, what these studies do is a genome-wide association study scans complete sets of DNA of a population to look for genetic variants that confer risk of disease. These genetic variations are termed single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs. SNPs are found, that are found more commonly in people with that disease are said to be associated with that particular disease. So just to reiterate, a genome-wide association study, basically what you're doing is you're looking at the DNA of individuals with the disease and the DNA of the individuals without the disease and comparing the two to see how they differ. But then the question is, does possession of a certain sequence of genes make a person susceptible to that particular disease. Here's the controversy. Genetic, te genetic test kit companies say, yes, of course, individuals with a different sequence of genes most likely have the risk of that specific disease. On the flip side, science says no. 
According to science, individuals with that different sequence of genes do not necessarily have the risk of that particular disease. So throughout our research, Dr. Capriotti and I found that there are some benefits and drawbacks to these genetic test kits. Uh, some of the advantages are that these test kits can actually do, like they do actually predict certain things. They can predict single gene disorders like sickle cell anemia, and they can also determine individual drug responses. Also, if a genetic test kit indicates risk, then it may improve patient compliance with health screening and preventative measures. Patients may be more inclined to adhere to lifestyle changes that reduce risk of disease development. And it also may motivate consumers to make proactive decisions regarding preventative uh, procedures and treatments. So for example, if someone unfortunately finds out that they have the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene associated with breast cancer, finding out this information might, may prompt them to have more frequent breast cancer screenings or even go as far as having prophylactic treatments like mastectomies and oophorectomies, which will prevent them from developing the disease later on in life. But there are also some disadvantages to these kits as well. So anytime you're taking it, you're addressing the touchy subject of whether or not someone is going to de develop a disease, you really have to consider questions like, will positive results cause undue anxiety in our patients? And if one family member receives results, will other family members feel un undue pressure to get treated as well? And then tested as well, rather. And on the flip side, will negative results cause false reassurance for individuals? Also, will results increase unnecessary screenings and diagnostic tests and even go as far as leading to unnecessary preventative procedures like major surgeries, which are not only traumatic to the patient, but they're costly as well. And what good is knowing that you have a susceptibility to a disease if you can't do anything about it? And how do we know our genetic information is being kept confidential? The, the answer to that is we don't know, and that's kind of a scary thought. Probably one of the most alarming disadvantages to these genetic test kits is that the home genetic test kit results vary among uh, test kit manufacturers, meaning if you order a test kit from 23andMe and you order a test kit from Navigenics, 23andMe may tell you have, you have a genetic susceptibility to lung cancer, while Navigenics could say that you don't have that susceptibility to lung cancer, but you have a susceptibility to heart disease. So clearly, sometimes the results aren't matching up, and this is, this is where a major problem comes in. And last, the results of these genetic test kits are based on a Caucasian reference population and do not account for non-Caucasian consumers. So I know that we all would like a crystal ball to tell us, oh, down the road, when you're 65, you would develop this disease or that disease. But the problem is, is when you're talking about genetic susceptibility to disease, it's really not that easy. What the problem with disease develop, developing a disease or you know, contracting a disease is that it's not one particular factor that comes into play. In fact, it's, it results from an interplay of many factors. And these genetic test kits, the focus is one gene mutation. When in reality, many diseases like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, they're a result of multiple gene mutations. And on top of that, environmental factors come into play, which these test kits also don't take into account. So this, this is really the root of the problem here. So once um, consumers receive the results, what exactly are they doing with these results? Well, the manufacturers of the test kits tell consumers to take their results and go find a genetic counselor and have them interpret the results for them. That is what is recommended. But I can tell you, this is not what people are doing. They're going to their pharmacists, their family doctors, their primary care providers, their nurse practitioners, and asking them to interpret the results for them. The problem here, pharmacists, physicians, nurse practitioners, 
admit to lacking the knowledge base in genetics to counsel patients about their specific risks of disease. And the problem is the large majority of these, care, these providers have been educated before this huge boom in genetics, so they weren't given that, that solid knowledge base in genetics to adequately handle the questions that their patients are coming to them with. In addition, there is a general lack of genetic counselors within the healthcare system. So it's so much easier for people to just go out there and call up their primary doctor who they're comfortable with and who they see on a regular basis instead of seeking out a genetic counselor whom they don't know and there are very few of them out there. So what does this mean? Obviously there needs to be continuing education in genetics um, for physicians, NPs, and PAs. In addition, more nursing graduate programs and physician residencies in genetic counseling are necessary. We need to make sure that this next generation of clinicians feels well prepared to handle this boom in genetics and answer all the questions that these patients are coming to them with. In general, healthcare providers need to realize that genetic susceptibilities are an important aspect of health information. And all healthcare providers need to recognize the importance of obtaining a genetic pedigree based on three generations and incorporate this into their daily practice. So obviously because there are so many drawbacks to these genetic test kits and so many questions about them, of course the FDA is going to have its concerns. They're so concerned in fact that in 2014 they put a hold on all the sales of genetic test kits. The FDA is concerned about the safety of the public health, they're concerned about the consequences of inaccurate results, and they're concerned about the clinical validity of risk estimation of these genetic test kits. So because of this, the FDA is calling for a stricter regulation of the genetic test kits, categorizing them as a medical device. Of course, this is not making everyone happy. Those in opposition say that the FDA is violating the rights of individuals to receive information on their personal health risks. Also, they are saying that the FDA is over-regulating an industry that shows really no evidence of harm, which I don't necessarily agree with. Anyway, in conclusion, regardless of all of this, direct-to-consumer genetic test kits have generated a lot of questions, and they have opened up a bunch of interesting debates that unfortunately clinicians don't feel that they're prepared to deal with. But these kits are not going away. There's obviously a huge demand for these kits, and healthcare providers need to be educated in this rapidly growing field of genetics to be able to adequately answer their patients' questions regarding genetic risks and susceptibilities and provide holistic care in general. I have not. So basically, right now you can order these test kits, but I was reading up, there's a bunch of blogs on 23andMe. This is, this is the major site that, that we looked at. And um, there's a bunch of blogs up there that are they're giving constant updates because the FDA won't allow 23andMe to give you your genetic results. So if I were to go swab my cheek or, you know, give, you know spit into like a little container and send out my, my uh, results, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get any results back yet. So we can't right now because there's a, the, because of the whole the FDA put on these kits. Last year you couldn't. Mm -hmm. Last year or the year before you couldn't. So you can still purchase them. Right. I've heard of genetic testing for dogs, like if you get a butt, <laughs> right. swab right. your dog and send it away and similar, but I have not similar. heard this for humans. Right. So it's fascinating to me. Do you know anyone who has purchased a kit and I personally don't know anybody who's purchased a kit and received results. The thing is, you can still take them, and you can, if you want an ancestry paternity or drug response um, and that kind of information, 
you can still do that. You just can't get the individual um, disease susceptibility results. So I personally don't know anybody who there's, has. There's a great PBS special. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, if you go for ANOVA or whatever, and I, uh, Bless Mark and Mark's a couple of years ago, um, where they actually, uh, Francis Collins, who's head of the Genome Project, actually did this. He, he kind of went and um, found out what he found. So my, my, and I wish I could remember the name of it right now, but I would recommend, you know, like, looking for PBS, the doctor who recommended Yeah, it's, it's NOVA. It was a PBS NOVA mm -hmm. special. Mm -hmm. Yes? So would you advocate then, one of, one of the things that you mentioned is, Medical knowledge without medical science, if you will. Um, so, so would you advocate for more genetic testing as part of one's general medical, like working with their doctor earlier, or is this something that you're opening a can of worms? You don't have a lot of control regardless. So, please do some testing. You know, in my personal opinion, I think that this area of medicine is a very personal, it's a personal choice. So if you want to go and get your, your genetics looked at and have your genetic susceptibilities told to you, I think that's fine. You just need to go to the, basically go to the top, go to the pros, go to the people who really know a ton about genetics. Um, when we first started doing this research, um, by the time we got the article published, we already had to make um, updates on the information that we had originally written in the article just because things are constantly changing. Um, so I think it's a really interesting field of medicine. I think that um, if you want to, I think that's great. But go to a real genetic counselor. But is, yeah. So, and this, I, I have no idea. Is, would that be something that someone with just kind of your standard health insurance could do? No. no. Right, so that could be another. It's ridiculously difficult. Right. My, my grandmother, there's a history of cancer. and do a pedigree as far back as she could and then consult with her sisters and brothers so and then they look at that before referring her to a genetic counselor and it didn't even go that far because they said she didn't have we're not prepared really in the medical field right now to take on this huge issue and no. it's growing faster than we can contain it and so we're trying to deal with that now, as far as I know it has been incorporated into some med school curriculum. Yes. So what about, um, so do you think as a, as a future yes. nurse in the next few months, um, do you think it should be incorporated, like genetics should be incorporated into the undergraduate medicine curriculum? To be it honest, is. yeah, yes. it is. Okay. We do get, we do get a lot of information regarding that. And, you know, even just from my clinical experiences, um, like Dr. Capri, I said, I'm going to be working in neonatal intensive care. So I've heard a lot about, you know, from patient, like the, the parents of the babies talking about, oh, well, I have this and that. Well, what is my baby going to have that? Or, you know what I mean? So I think it's definitely something, you know, being a nurse, being at the bedside, being the one talking to the patients a lot of the time, it's worthwhile having at least a base baseline knowledge in it, you know? Here at Villanova, we've had genetics in the curriculum for nurses for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So thinking ahead to technologies like the CRISPR-Cas9 that's going to edit your genome and edit future genomes, has there, have any of these companies started going online like, all right, well, if you get you and your spouse and we combine those results, we can show you what your baby looks like. and Kind of like designer babies. That. And is that, has anyone 
talked about that? I mean, to be honest, I don't know if that's marketed, you know, online for $99 and you just have to click, you know, <laughs> you know enter your credit card information and you have it shipped to you. That, to me, I think... But that's possible. Yeah. Genetic editing is possible. Yeah, no, the... the, the and to be honest, we don't know. I mean, maybe in a couple of years, you're going to be able to order a kit and design your own baby. You know, that that's the thing. We really don't know where this is going to be going. So that's why it's so important that healthcare professionals in general have a strong knowledge base in, in this area because people people want that, you know, as crazy as it sounds, people want that. And physicians my age, we didn't have genetics in our curriculum. So we're learning this now. And it's hard to get physicians and everybody on board to have the same level of knowledge that we need in order to... Is it, is it part of boards? Is there genetics? At this point, stuff? I don't know, but it wasn't part of the And now I'm 50, uh, 58, so I'm kind of in the middle there, mm -hmm. aging. Yeah? I, I'm wondering, um, have you seen any kind of disclaimers? I mean, I can't believe that, you know, with the litigation that's so popular in our society, I can't believe mm -hmm. somebody's not going to get surgery and have something horrible happen to them and try to sue, right. or maybe right. Right. Uh, get, get a disease that, that this thing said, you know, they, they weren't at mm -hmm. risk for right. and turn around. And that's part of the problem. If you receive results that say, oh, you're totally fine, you're not going to, you know, contract any disease, and then you go, you know, you smoke 16 packs of cigarettes a day and, you know, you eat all the junk food you want, you know, chances are you're going to develop something. So. It, they really could give false reassurance to people, and then they won't go and get their screenings done. They won't have their, you know, that kind of stuff. I think there are disclaimers there, on that. Yeah, there are, and that's why they recommend, all these kits recommend that you seek a genetic counselor um, right after you get the results. But the problem is, is, you know, do you do everything that your doctor tells you? Chances are probably not. Sometimes people don't want to listen to it, so that, that's why they're going to their pharmacist. They're going to CVS and asking Sally behind the counter, you know, what's going on? You know what I mean? So that's the problem. That's really the issue here. Yeah. You cannot get... In Canada, you want to go through Canada, you can get it, but not in the United States. If I'm in the pharmacy looking at a shelf, are they saying, Find out your susceptibility to the disease by this product. Uh, are they are they selling their product? No. To do something that okay. At the I scan them and sell it to the wow. twenty fifteen. But, but they're also not advertising or a box or all. But online you can get them. So they're obviously because coming, they're from, coming from, Canada. from Canada or somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. I, you mentioned uh, briefly about the privacy issue. You know, with what's happening to your data once the the company. That and I was wondering, well, multifolded question. So the first question is, okay. do you, you said you so you sign up and you get an account and then you order the stuff and then you get it? I mean, do you? Is there any sort of disclaimer or indemnification or any kind of waiver or any kind of legal legal document that you sign with the company as to the the, the rights con concerning your information? And then the other. Part of that question is HIPAA. You know, I can't imagine that 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 given the the you know say the importance of HIPAA that that that, that this doesn't kind of affect that or the or HIPAA doesn't affect it. And then the other thing I was wondering is what about with your children? Because I know like my youngest son has muscular dystrophy, and so they said it was possible for my wife and my daughters to be tested to see if they were carriers. Right. 
but and this is all being done by you know genetic people or people who work with muscular dystrophy but the thing that they said was but we can't test your daughters until they are of childbearing age and and able to give their own consent mm -hmm. of whether or not to have the testing done um, because you know and, and here they're saying because it, it, they should know if they want to know because it can affect you know if they are a carrier whether or not they want to have children or not or be married or whatever so the other question I have is you know what if you buy this kit and you swab your child's mouth and send it off I mean it, what protection is there against doing that? There's no protection. There's a barcode associated with everyone who purchases this. So it is identifiable who you are. Okay. And we don't know what they're doing with this information, but there's a federal act that says genetic information non-discrimination act. That's been passed, and that means no one can discriminate based on their genetics. However, we know in the real world that does get by us, and people can. So that's a big concern. They can identify who you are that has had this test because of a barcode. And your second question, I'm sorry. It's just about HIPAA. Like, well, and also, do you sign anything saying, uh, you know, because like, you know, like with my, I have to sign something at the doctor's office that says they can right. tell my wife my test results or something like that. I mean, right. so no, I mean, I, it doesn't like seem like they have any of those kinds yeah. of protections. And I would think that HIPAA would prevent them well, in some ways sharing information That's and then, then the, the third end, one was just mm -hmm. can you do it could you do it to somebody else yeah, whether sure it's your you child could. or not you know what I'm saying yes, like you could. I mean yeah they identifies but the company's not going to say well we won't do the no. testing for you because it's no. not you they don't do that right and it's the FDA now that's stepping in because right. this is considered a medical device and that's why this HIPAA is taking effect yes okay. it is through the FDA regulations there are mm -hmm. issues also with the insurance company, right? Because um, people need to read the fine print. We had a student from outside the country, where it's a real case, who uh, has a genetic um, disease, and although she had health insurance, she found that they denied the claim because it had a genetic basis. Fortunately, the Brimmore Hospital Foundation. Well, this is okay. 20 years ago, oh, okay. or like three years ago. But it's something that people don't realize. <coughs> they don't read the fine print. There's certain things that you can exclude it from certain policies. And that's the thing, you know, we as healthcare providers, we realize all of this. But the fact that people can don't even need yeah. to consult anyone. They can go and just order it online and do it themselves and sit in their home. And that's why you can swab your kids. It just is a barcode. You don't, you really... You know, there's really no regulation of this, and that's why it's kind of a scary thing. I think there's the, you know, there's the ethical issues that are also, uh, you know, on the top of everybody's mind. There are people that have a uh, history in the family of Huntington's Korea, and their children, should they or should not, they not be tested, even in a more scientific way? You know, do you want to know? And, it's irreversible. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right. Do you want to wait and see, or do you want to know what's going to happen? I mean, those are those are heavy-duty questions that go well beyond the science. Mm -hmm. But children have no rights in this country, so if you want to swab your child, you can. But technically speaking, on genetic piece, they have to wait until they're older to see if they're a carrier. It's very different if they have a disease. 
isn't a very caregiver because it, you can do anything you want to the child because they have no rights. And that goes into the right Good Now we would like to invite uh, Dr. Elizabeth B. Dowdle. So, good morning. Um, I have the great pleasure of introducing Elizabeth Long, who I sat down yesterday because I have the also wonderful, not just being her faculty mentor, but she's my academic advisor. So I have known her for four years, from August, from when she came in from Connecticut, to now. And when I was sitting down, okay, she got this, and she, I had like three pages, and it was a little bit long, and that was like an Arial 14 font. So I decided to kind of just say, she does it all. She is wonderful. She is amazing. She is a spectacular student who is active across this campus, certainly in the College of Teaching, but across this campus. She has been elected and maintained a national role as vice president of the National Student, Student Nurses Association. She has been out changing policies, has been out investigating into research. She is wonderful, and she's a really nice person. So when Dean Fitzpatrick announced that we had money through the Davis family to fund undergraduate research at the College of Nursing, Elizabeth was the first one knocking on my door saying, oh, this is really interesting. What can I do about it? And she loves policy. She loves policy. And, and policy is good. Policy is good. It's not always fundable. So I said, well, let's talk about something. And she said, okay. And we started talking about victims, vulnerable populations, and violence. And Elizabeth had the opportunity to work in an urban emergency department where she will now, in July, start as a nurse at Hupps Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania in the emergency department, which, as an FYI, is almost impossible for a new grad to get a position in that kind of a facility. And she said, let's look at something there. So we started talking about victims of human trafficking, which is a growing issue. It is a growing issue it just like the genetics because of this wonderful thing, the internet, whether it's cooling or not cooling. It's <laughs> and so what we are seeing is that that has opened up a whole new world because back in the day, you used to have to know someone to know something to get someone. Well, now you can just type in whatever you want or you go to a certain site. So we started talking about human trafficking and we started looking at what does this all mean? Well, it's not a piece, it is under the umbrella of violence. And so Elizabeth took that and ran with it and really went into the trenches to talk to the nurses about this topic. 
because if we can't identify, if we don't screen, if we can't assess, what are we going to do? How do we intervene, not just in nursing, but how do other disciplines and other professions intervene if we can't identify? Well, she took the Davis money and created this fabulous project where she has already presented it at a variety of sources here at campus, but also in Arizona at a national conference with a lot of publicity. So I give to you Elizabeth Long. Wow, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> Very nice. Um, before I get started, I just wanted to thank Dr. Dowdell for all of your mentorship throughout the years and for guiding me on this project. I wouldn't have been able to do it without you and all of your support. And get started. So, as Dr. Dowdell mentioned, my study is Nurses' Perceptions of Human Trafficking Victims in an Urban Emergency Department, a qualitative study. And the funding source was, as she mentioned as well, from the Davis Family Undergraduate Research Fund, which I was very fortunate to be selected for. It was the first year we've had it at the College of Nursing. And I really hope that it continues and that other students have the opportunity to pursue research that they're passionate about on the undergraduate level. And I conducted this project in the summer of 2014. So human trafficking, it really is modern day slavery and it generates billions of dollars each year globally. And because it is such a profitable industry, it's estimated to surpass the drug trade as the leading illegal industry in the world. And it's categorized into forced labor and sex trafficking. Often we hear more about sex trafficking because it is the majority of victims, but labor trafficking is just as important to recognize. And many prostitutes are trafficking victims, which was something I didn't know before I did a review of the literature, that they are forced into a life that they did not choose themselves. We'll talk about that more in the rest of my presentation. So in 2006, there was an estimated 14,500 to 17,500 people who were trafficked in the United States. We hear about trafficking in other countries all the time on the news, it's some third world country. Well, it happens in the US and quite frequently, unfortunately. Uh, and even more significant was that mostly women and children are trafficked. And women and children are already a vulnerable population. So that just shows how these people take advantage of an already vulnerable group. Pennsylvania has been identified as one of the highest hotline calls as a state in the country. And I think that's largely due to the location of our major cities and the airports and highways that go through them, which can allow for people to be brought in. Now, this last point is one of the most shocking statistics that I found and really got me thinking about what I wanted to do with this summer project. And that's that at least 28% of human trafficking victims have come into contact with health care providers, but were not recognized as human trafficking victims. It's very rare for human trafficking victims to come into the emergency department in the first place, so that means something really bad has had to happen to them. They're already in a vulnerable position, and as healthcare providers, we are not screening and identifying them to meet their needs. And so I will talk more about what we can do to further that.
So the purpose of my study was to understand the perceptions of emergency department nurses about human trafficking, victims of violence, and prostitutes. The research questions that I had were how the emergency department nurses perceived the prevalence of human trafficking victims in the population that their hospital served, whether there were any differences between registered nurses' perceptions and sexual assault nurse examiners, which are still registered nurses, but they have a special certification making them experts in treating victims of violence and sexual assault, and finally, how the policies of the institution impacted the nurses' perceptions of human trafficking victims and screening policies, if there were any available, that the nurses utilized. So I used a qualitative study with a semi-structured interview approach. Uh, I had a total of 12 questions that I e asked each of the nurses, and the interviews were recorded, transcribed, and then I conducted thematic analysis. So the demographic data that I decided to collect along with the interviews included the nurse's age, gender, any certifications that they had, such as being a certified emergency nurse or a sexual assault nurse examiner, their ethnicity, the number of years they worked in the ED, and whether they had worked in any previous nursing specialties, because many most people do not start right in the ED. So it was interesting to see their backgrounds. So my subjects included... Uh, 10 registered nurses, which I was very excited about because <laughs> I love the ED nurses, but they're busy. <laughs> so if you can get them, it's fabulous. And I was also really excited to have five males and five females because nursing is largely a female profession. And I think the male perspective on this issue was crucial and really important to view. I had one sexual assault nurse examiner that I was really excited to interview and learn about her perspective. Nine of them had their bachelor's in nursing and four were certified emergency nurses, which was also significant. And a couple more statistics or breakdowns that I had one who was African American, one who was Asian, and the rest were Caucasian nurses. The average age was 37 years old, and that was a range of 25 years old to 57 years old. So it was really interesting to see life experience and how that impacted their perceptions. And the average number of years working in the ER was 10.7. And again, that ranged from four years to 38 years in the ER, which was really impressive. So I conducted my study in an urban emergency department at a large teaching hospital. And it was a level one trauma center at the time. And that means that's the highest level of acuity that will come into that hospital. If there is a motor vehicle accident, shooting, stabbing, those nurses saw the most critically ill patients. And that also exposed them to a lot of victims of violence and prostitutes and potentially human trafficking victims. So I had five major themes that emerged from all the interviews that I conducted. And the first, which was really interesting, is that all the nurses had worked with or screened a victim of violence. And that's unfortunate to hear that someone who had only worked in the ER four years would have a patient who was a victim, but it speaks to the prevalence of it and how we need to be aware of how to treat them and care for them. Uh, the nurses stated that human trafficking exists in the patient population that their hospital serves, yet no one had reported taking care of a human trafficking victim. And when I read all the interviews and came up with that theme, it was 
not that they were ignorant clearly that it happened, but I think they don't have the resources or the education or the background to identify these victims because it's not easy to do that. The nurses also described victims of violence as sad and grieving when they presented to the ER after a trauma or a sexual assault. But they described prostitutes as hard and tough because they've chosen their lifestyle. And that was surprising to me as well, that they've chosen it, which shows the lack of awareness that prostitutes may as well be human trafficking victims forced into that life. And this is a quote from one of the nurses about what a victim of violence presents as. She said, the patients themselves come across as withdrawn with a flat affect. Some of them come across as being aggressive, feeling defensive, trying to interrogate what exactly is going on with them. So it's been either or. And that's pretty typical of many victims of violence. They have a lot of emotions going on. They could be very distant or they could have that grieving presentation that I mentioned the nurses reported. And these two quotes I thought were important to include on how the nurses described prostitutes. They said, a prostitute many times doesn't have that same stigma as a person that is in a situation they can't get out of. A prostitute has a stronger personality, in my experience, than a person of violence. They are not timid. They don't have as many downplayed eyes. They're like, this is what I do, this is who I am, and this is what I need. So very different views when in fact both patients could have been a victim of violence. And they said they had prostitutes who were in the trauma bay because they got beaten up by somebody, but they still described them as a stronger, tougher exterior than the victims of violence. And they perceived human trafficking victims overwhelmingly to be young, female, and foreign-born. And when they said that, I always asked the follow-up question, well, do you believe that they could be American citizens? And most of them were like, oh, yeah, I guess it's possible. But the media portrayal of human trafficking victims and what we see on TV all the time is someone, like I said, in another country who's trying to come to the United States and they get their passport taken away and they're in this life of slavery. So that was another education piece that I thought of. And also that they were young and female, and they could just as well be old men who are labor traffickers or even sex trafficked um, around the country. This is from the uh, sexual assault nurse examiner. She had a great quote saying, we generally think of them as younger or children. But I know in different areas, we still see women from Russia, women from China. And you know, I think that when we see them, we feel we will see them with an overbearing male, the normal presentation of abuse. And that last line about the normal presentation of abuse is what we're taught for victims of violence. But victims of human trafficking could have a male with them who's doting and charismatic and manipulative and doesn't present with those normal signs of control over the patient, which is terrifying to think about as a nurse and as a healthcare provider, but important to know. The nurses said they've never had any education or in-services continuing education on human trafficking victims with uh, nursing school or in professional practice. And most of the nurses reported having had education on caring for victims of violence and available community resources. 
This was especially apparent when I asked the nurses where they would refer a human trafficking victim if they were to have one in their ED. And they listed all the shelters for domestic violence victims, uh, and they said get the police involved and bring them to the Philadelphia um, Center for Women. And while those are still good resources, we have specific shelters in Philadelphia and organizations that are catered to these human trafficking victims because it's different. They have a lot of different psychological, emotional, and physical needs that a person who's a victim of violence does not. So the limitations from my studies, that is a small sample, which is the case with all qualitative studies. Um, and I also would have liked to have more than one sexual assault nurse examiner participate, even though we only had three in RER, which was interesting. Um, and there was also no policy on human trafficking at all. And it's not mandated by the hospital or by the United States to screen for human trafficking victims. But we are mandated federally to screen for victims of domestic violence. Every patient, no matter who they are, we ask them whether or not they feel safe at home and go from there. So I think if there was a policy in place at a different hospital, um, one of my friends works in Atlanta and she said that's a really a hot spot for human trafficking of children and she said they have a lot of policies in place at Atlanta Children's to identify them and maybe the nurses there would be more aware of it and think about them in a different way. So that's a place for further research maybe in grad school. Um, so just in conclusion, nurses really are in a key position to identify these victims of violence and human trafficking. We are often the first person that greets them coming through the doors if they're walking or being transported by ambulance. So it really is a privilege and a responsibility to be able to care for them to the best of our abilities. Another key finding was that victims of violence, like I said, are perceived to be very different than prostitutes. And the way we perceive people can often change and some we all have internal biases and that could affect the way we care for them so perhaps some more education on these different populations and how to provide them with the best care possible would be helpful and nurses really do want to provide care in the emergency department and be more aware of human trafficking the nurses that i worked with were so knowledgeable a lot of them are going back to school for graduate degrees and it's just a learning environment especially when discussing vulnerable populations. So that was really encouraging to get all of their support and listen to what they wanted to do. And like I said, there is a need for education and desire for nurses to be further educated on these victims of violence and have information about those specific resources for human trafficking victims. I know we have a list in our office uh, in the ER with different shelters to send women to, and the social worker is well-versed in those. Maybe we could have our social worker learn about resources for human trafficking and do in-services on that for our nurses. And then this is a picture of me at the uh, National Student Nurses Association Conference. Decided to throw it in with uh, the poster that I created. And I also was able to share my results at the College of Nursing Undergraduate Research Symposium back in March and yesterday at the Research Expo Scholars Day in Driscoll. And I'm excited to say that I'm going to be presenting my findings at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania's Nurses Week. So I'll have a bulletin board in the lobby there as well. 
And um, it's just been such a great experience being able to meet people from across the country and learn about people in different disciplines and what they know about human trafficking. One of the um, patient care technicians that I worked with over the summer is a school counselor by day and works at night at the hospital as a two-part job. And he said at their counseling conference, they talked about human trafficking in children and how to identify it as a counselor. And just getting that conversation started for me was really just wonderful. And I got so much more out of this than just a research study. Uh, it's truly become one of my past passions. And I hope uh, within the next couple of years working in my AD to develop a policy or a screening tool and conduct further research to better identify and hopefully get federally mandated screening for these victims. And I'd be happy to take any questions that people have right now. So, um, if, if, if victims of, of violence, or domestic violence, mm -hmm. um, come into your ER or whatever, and they're referred to uh, shelters, what about um, you know extending that? education about trafficking to these kinds of shelters so that at least there is, you know, a dual role that, that the shelters might be able to, to fill. Yeah, I think those shelters are aware, um, but I think the problem is as healthcare providers, we're the ones sending them there, and if we're not educated enough to tell them what we suspect, then they may not be educated enough to care for them to the best of their abilities. And the shelters... The sexual assault nurse examiner I interviewed, she was like, they're better than nothing, but we do not have a good system to care for these victims. I guess my follow-up to that is, yeah. how would you identify? There are some screening tools. Um, Dr. Sabella out of Drexel University has developed a few questions, and that would be um, anything from, have you ever been forced to work without pay? Do you have a U.S. passport or green card? And trying to introduce a general question that can lead to follow-ups if the patient is a, has a positive response to that. Because in ER, we have quick questions, and if it's a yes, then we go further into it. If not, we address the immediate problem. So that's kind of what we hope to do. Isn't it true that most of these people that arrive in the emergency room arrive with the perpetrator and, and they're supervised? So how would those nurses approach the patient if they can't exclude the patient from that diet. Yeah, that's a big issue. Um, yeah, but it's also a clue. Yeah, absolutely. Emergency room nurses will say it's a clue mm -hmm. to what is going on right. when they're so heavily supervised or brought in by the employer. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. I or think whomever. It would be, the nurses in the ER are very clever about getting people out of the room if they can. And if they are getting a lot of pushback saying like, oh, to the, let's say it's the traffickers with the patient, you tell the trafficker, you need to go to administration and fill out a form, just go to the front desk for a minute. If they don't want to leave the room at all, then we have security. Um, we have police officers usually in the ER to kind of keep an eye on that and get them out of the room if they need to be because as medical professionals, we need to assess the patient to the fullest of our abilities, and we hope not to go down that route. But yeah, that could definitely be a huge clue.
that something is not right. I'm just curious, was it typically qualitative? Um, the sample that you took was like, it wasn't really representative of the population, right? It's just because you want more of a spread in opinion? You chose five males, five females, right? You said the, the population nurses is more. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the ER is a different place, too. We have a lot more male nurses than other floors, which was good. And I think that the male perspective can be very different from the female perspective as a healthcare provider. And both of them together, I thought, really added a richness to the data. So I didn't plan on getting five males, but it worked out really well. Yeah. You had mentioned um, having social workers pay for this or that. If you were going to do, like, say, a mini-series, Mm -hmm. Who else could be um, to fall into Oh, well, definitely um, we have nurses that are experts in identifying human trafficking victims. Dr. Sabella, like I mentioned, at Drexel. And she has an organization, actually, uh, Project Phoenix, which works to prevent women in Philadelphia from going into a life of human trafficking and prostitution. So working with some of those experts to come in who are trained to teach healthcare providers about how to screen for these victims. And I think also it shouldn't just be for nurses. We should have medicine and residents and physicians and pharmacists. Anyone on the team should be involved and aware of it because even um, the people in administration, everyone plays a specific role. But if you notice something, you can really make a difference. So I would like to get physicians involved as well with that. Also, it's important to really remember that 86% of the people trafficked in this country are Caucasians or African Americans, and they're U.S. citizens. They're not these little foreign Asian people or whatever. They are U.S. citizens. And so the resources available to them are very, very different. So when we look at the team, it's medicine, it's social work, it's nursing, it has to be pastoral care, and it can't just happen in the ED. Right now, depending upon what kind of victim you are, there are seven beds available to you. And when we look at shelters, there are seven beds in the city of Philadelphia available to a victim of human trafficking. Now, if they're foreign-born, many more resources. And if they're U.S.-born, they may as well. They're really, it's very different. So that becomes a critical piece, and really picked up on some of that in talking to the nurses, because they have this image that they're all these foreign-born, right. and they're not. When they get trafficked from Minnesota, from Texas, they're not coming from China. Thank you. Dr. Argman? I was wondering if I could ask um, the questions of the expert of Dr. Mazzanella. Is that, are those questions being used by any of the people at the Dexel Association? So are the Uh, I haven't heard of them being used. The article that I found the questions in was from 2009, which to me is like, oh, so far away in research land, but <laughs> it unfortunately has not made it yet. Dr. Dowdell, you want to add to that? Yeah, please do. I'm trying to sit on my hands. The questions are no more than what we all ask. It's just asking them. And then if you get a yes or you get a head following up with a second question. 
so in women's health, in the, in the, the OB course that they have to take here at Christensen, we talk about that because the domestic violence and intimate partner also includes a, case, a component of human trafficking. So those questions come up in there and get reinforced in making sure it's still there. Because it's just, it's no different than what we already know and what we're looking for. Just following the questions. Just asking the questions, not looking at our hands, but looking at the people and separating those that we have as recipients. And it's not just the ER nurses, it's every and the Affordable Care Act now says you should be asked every time you go in for a blood test, a blood pressure check, or your well check, they should ask you, male or female, do you feel safe where you live? Are you in an environment where someone is hurting you or intimidating you? And if your health care provider isn't asking that, then they're in violation of the law. Thanks. You were talking about the perception and, and uh, talking about sort of the image that nurses have, mm -hmm. and they're informed professionals, so the image that they have of prostitutes and of people who are human trafficking victims. And I guess the question I have is, do you have any clear sense of how we can change perceptions of what those are beyond, say, you know, incorporating more of that into the nursing school curriculum and that, I mean, just sort of culturally, how can the nursing profession help just everyday people like me who do not have any medical background have a different perception about who actually is a prostitute and, and, and who actually is being humanly trafficked? Yeah, that's a great question. I think largely where we found a lot of these perceptions came from was the media. And I think nurses need to utilize the media in the best way possible. I mean, you'll see a story of a nurse that a patient loved on TV, which is great for the image of nursing, but really trying to bring them out of the shadows. And I think nurses have done a good job in the past few years about really getting themselves out there, especially the Ebola nurses, and have that positive image and talking about the patient as a patient instead of the Ebola victim. Um, so I think utilizing that more and through social media would help to bring it to the general public and you don't have to keep it medical. It's really, this presentation, I think can be applied to so many different disciplines. It's not a very high level of interpretation in that way. And I think if people see some hard hitting statistics, even on the nightly news, you can start changing those perceptions culturally and hopefully nurses can continue to spearhead that and make a culture shift within their own units and departments. Any other questions? All right. Well, thank you so much. I'd like to invite uh, Dr. Robert Curry. <laughs> Didn't realize I was supposed to introduce John until just now, but I'm happy, happy to do that. <laughs>
Um, I started, I met John, uh, John Zott, um, a little bit more than two years ago when he expressed some interest in getting involved in my lab. And uh, he and I made some plans for a, a uh, undergraduate research fellowship application, which was exciting to me because uh, John's from New Hampshire, go Red Sox. Uh, but he had outdoor background that reflects his uh, growing up in Keene, New Hampshire, and being surrounded by uh, songbirds in his backyard, and had uh, outdoor experience. And for the field part of what we do, that's really important. Um, so he did a great job in putting together a, a fellowship application, and he was funded. And he headed off to uh, one of the sites that you'll hear about and did a, a really good job of managing a project with without my needing to hold his hand at any point, which, you know, sometimes it's, it's tough for students when they first get out there to know what to do. But um, to John's credit, he did, made good decisions and used his time effectively, drove the van, did all of that stuff, um, and was extremely independent. Um, then he went off to Wall Street the, the following summer, instead of coming back to, my, to the, the field operation, and I can't fault him for that. He, he earned some money, and he has an, an, an opportunity down the road to do more of the same. Um, and then he came back to my lab uh, last fall to do the genetic side of the project. So this is a case of a project with two completely different components, and John did a great job on both of them, as you'll hear about. So he's been a pleasure to work with, and I'm happy to introduce him. And so he'll tell you about I should mention also, he doesn't just do biology. He's also been very actively involved in service activities. And it's just such a long list, I won't even try listing it. because. <laughs> um, well, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Curry, for such a, a kind introduction. Um, this project 100% would not be possible without his direction, his mentorship. From day one, when I walked in, kind of scared to his office, uh, maybe I want to try some research, Dr. Curry, to, to, you know, a week from today when I'll be presenting my senior thesis. And he's been, been there every step of the way. So I really want to thank him for that. Um, I also want to thank Falvey Library for putting on this event um, and, and for the honor of this award. I'm really excited about it. And this has been, I know everybody who's been here, just a really incredible morning to see research across all the schools, all the disciplines. And that's a great opportunity as well. I also know if I read the schedule right that I think I'm the only thing that stands between you guys and Father Peter. So I'll keep I'll keep an eye on the time and make sure should we get out of here in short order. So I guess to start out, uh, as Dr. Curry alluded to, I work um, with two species of chickadees that hybridize. Um, and so I figured I'd start you off just just this is this is my study species for the past three years. This is what I've I've worked in the lab in the field um, and on the page with. So on the left is a Carolina chickadee. On the right is a black captain. What you all are probably thinking is, well, they look exactly the same. <laughs> um, and, and I'll tell you, I felt the same way when I first got in. But as under the direction of Dr. Curry, you know, there's some morphological and phenotypical differences that help us tell them apart. But one of the big, I guess, problems of my work is that in the hybrid zone, all these relationships become blurred. So that's what I'll be talking about today. But I think first to start off in terms of general, what I think begs the question, why study hybridization? Why, why is this important? Why are we here today? So... Um, I think that most of you guys in your biology classes throughout the years have, have heard about evolution and speciation and natural selection and things like Darwin's finches are good buzzwords and, and things uh, that we know about. So one of the really important functions of studying hybridization is that it allows us to study those mechanisms of speciation. And then when we have speciation, we can look at maintenance of those species differences. 
These are two different species um, that, that have come in contact to each other. So how do we maintain that, that kind of species difference there? I think the second question uh, that probably has come up in most of your minds is why birds? This is a question I've been asked by my roommates, um, <laughs> by you know fellow students in the biology department. And there's a lot of reasons why the chickadee is a really great study model. Uh, from, uh, I guess, more of a pragmatic perspective, we have a really incredible opportunity here at Villanova in that we have this great research site, this hybrid zone, an hour north of here, practically in our backyard. And that allows us to ask some of those questions that I was really interested in about maintenance of species difference um, in a way that's easy, it's affordable, we're able to do it here. So um, I'll get a little bit more into that. What are we studying? Where are we studying? So first, to start, my first study species, the black-capped chickadee, is in the north. The Carolina is in the south. For the purposes of this presentation, easy to remember, Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, and the south. And so these, uh, these two species interact in a parapatric hybrid zone, which basically means that there are two species that have ranges that don't significantly overlap, but they do have contact in a narrow zone. That zone right here runs from about southern Kansas all the way up into central New Jersey. And so what happens um, in this zone is we're, we're witnessing these two species come into contact and hybridize. Um, and so to get a good picture for our lab of, of this phenomenon, we have multiple study sites on either side of the zone and across the zone. So Great Marsh here is purely Carolina. Uh, Tuscarora in the north is purely blackcap. And we have these two study sites, Nobby Forest and Hawk Mountain, that are within that hybrid zone. And so my work primarily exists at Hawk Mountain. I mean, Nobby Forest, excuse me. So I also talked about um, that one of the reasons we study birds is they, they make an effective study model. So why is that? Um, one, they can mate and produce, produce fertile offspring. Uh, so we can look at consequences of hybridization there. However, the reason that it just doesn't spread out and these birds aren't one species is their young are less fit than their counterparts. We see lower hatching success, lower egg clutch size. So that's an interesting phenomenon. Also, they naturally nest in these tree cavities, which we can mimic pretty easily. And rather than talk a bigger um, picture or an object is worth a thousand words. So we have these natural nest snags that we build. We have about a hundred or so of them up at Noldy Forest. And uh, basically, it's just a big, long PVC pipe. They're obviously not clear in the field, but we'll spray paint them camouflage. And uh, what we'll do is we can monitor then the life cycle of these birds from the moment they start excavating their nest to the, to the day that they're, they're young fledge. So that provides us a really interesting snapshot. So I also want to take a moment, um, given that we're at the Falvey Scholars event, to, to, to talk about how Falvey has influenced my research and been a big part of, of what I've been able to do. So this is some current research that has come out of our lab recently. These are both papers that have been published in, by our lab in a collaboration that we have with another lab up at Cornell. But um, in terms of finding background research, in terms of utilizing the scholarly databases that Falvey provides the resources to us here, it's been invaluable, and I just really want to thank them for that. Nick Ader talked earlier about everything from managing citations to, to utilizing those databases, so I just want to echo that. So the one paper that I want to bring up briefly here is this current biology paper that came out in the spring of 2014. And so one of the cool things about this hybrid zone is that it's moving northward. And so in this paper, uh, what we were able to show is that that movement northward is actually correlated with climate change, which is, I think, something that's really topical right now, really important to note. Another reason I want to bring that up is um, as part of the analysis, they were able to 
take some of our samples that we've collected and sequence these birds uh, to provide us with some information about their genetics that I'll get to later. But one of the conclusions that they came to is that site in Oldie Forest in a hybrid zone uh, was they demonstrated to, uh, to be pure Carolina. And so that offered some interesting uh, conclusions that I'm going to come to in just a minute. So the next part of my project involves song vocalization. So we know we have these hybrid species. Now what am I going to look at? And the reason I looked at song vocalization is there's a lot of important consequence and function there. One, territory defense. Um, I think that's something that all, you know, is pretty intuitive to you guys in terms of if uh, you're a male chickadee and your mate is, is incubating her clutch, that you need to defend your territory, um, all that sort of stuff. Mate selection, another, uh, you know, very important aspect of, of the chickadee life cycle. So now we need to establish what song vocalizations exist in these species. So they are distinct. So in the south, the Carolina chickadees, they show two primary song types, the black-capped individuals showing ones. So let's look at those. So what are you looking at here? A bunch of black dots on the screen. This is basically sound made visual. And how do we do that? On the x-axis, we have time. So the length of these notes is denoted in seconds on the x. And the frequency, basically how high or low, is, how high or low it is, is on, is on the y-axis there. So these two songs, Carolina A and Carolina B, are found in that southern species. So stick with me here. Carolina A, it's a high-low, high-low, so something like um, You've got Carolina B. And I've actually uh, brought an assistant for, for C. Um, so... I was worried I'd get a little bit nervous up here, get a little dry lips, so I can do the whistle. Um, so now that you know we established those song types, um, what happens in the hybrid zone? They're distinct in the north and the south, but when we have this this interbreeding um, within this hybrid zone, these relationships become blurred. You know, individuals of one species learn the songs in another. We have hybrids that that can learn more than one species song, and that's a really interesting question that I set out to investigate. So um, as I said, beginning the summer of uh, 2013 when I began this research, for the first time we heard all three song types in Oldie Forest. Before, uh, it, it shifted from primarily black cap to black cap in Carolina A, and in this summer we finally first heard Carolina B. We also heard some intermediate varieties, which were garbled or, or slightly different. I'll get to that later. And then we also found that... Um, there was species variability in who was singing these. It wasn't just, oh, all the Carolina birds would sing the Carolina song and, and the black cat would, would sing the black cat. No, these relationships were mixed. And I already mentioned uh, the genetic data published by um, Taylor et al. in the current biology paper. So how do I go about investigating this? Um, so what we first hypothesized, what we were observing, was that there's a timeline that existed between the movement of the genetic front of this hybrid zone. Remember, genetically, they're all supposed to be Carolina, and the behavior when we're still seeing these other songs. So I went out to establish repertoires of birds, get blood samples so I could do genetic analysis, and, and really see what was going on. So um, as these are some predictions that I had, and, uh, but how do, how do you go about establishing what a bird sings? You can't you know, sit it down for an interview or, or get it in the studio. I don't know. So um, I really needed to develop an experimental setup to that, to, to determine a cause and effect relationship. So what I do is playback experiments. So we have a nest, right? Um, and so we've identified this nest over the course of the whole field season as having eggs. 
having a, a breeding pair that's incubating those eggs. At that time in the bird's life cycle, hormonal levels are higher, so they're more likely to defend and, and, and match to song and that terrier defense stuff that we talked about. So what I would do is I, I would set up two speakers, 30 meters to either side. Um, the remote game calling speakers, so I have them programmed, hooked up to a, a remote. And then from a distance of about 50 meters, I have my microphone. I'd, I'd be observing what the bird does in relation to my experiments. So the whole time I have a high quality microphone set up under a camouflaged uh, apparatus at the base of the nest, recording the songs and the responses. And I also have a handheld mic where I'm taking observations spatially, what the birds are singing, how they're responding, what's going on. Um, and so how do I do my playbacks? So actually what I would do is pair two different song types and play them alternately from different speakers. So I'd have a control silence. Obviously I'm moving around, I'm, I'm disturbing the environment, so I'd ha let everything equal out and then begin my playback. So first I'd have to say the A song for two minutes, every five seconds, which is the normal rate of song in the chickadee species, followed by silence. Then on another speaker on the other side, I'd begin the second song, silence. So that's my first experimental unit. Then I'd go about replicating that three times and followed by another control silence. So you guys are probably thinking, why this alternating kind of shotgun approach there? Why not just play one speaker? And so the question is there, if you go out and play one speaker, say an A song and the bird responds and you get a great uh, recording of its repertoire and you can say, I've established that this bird knows Carolina A song, responds with the same song, and you come back the next day and uh, you set up with a B song and you play it and nothing happens. But what if there's a weather change, a significant weather change? What if there's, you know, the nest has been depredated? What it, there's all these, working in the field, the, the, the difficult thing is you're dealing with a, a wide variety of variables. So this allowed us to control um, in these alternating paths of song to sample two song types while controlling for pretty much all, all those variables in there. So what did I see? Um, so what you're looking at here is these three, song, these three, uh, three song types right here. Response to A, B, and C. This is no response. You can disregard that for now. And so what I found was that regardless of what I played, if I played A, if I played B, I played C, most likely I'd get an A response. And sometimes I'd see, you know, smaller instances of B or C of matching a song, but it looked like I was getting mostly A. So looking at that, that from a statistical perspective, sorry about the formatting scene did not come over all right, but um, statistically, excuse me, significantly that the bird either just sang its repertoire, no matter what songs were played, it sang what it knew, or just ignored the song that was played and um, matched with the song that it, that it most, uh, was the, the most prominent part of its repertoire there. So now what happens? Um, I have established a repertoire of about a, a sample size of 48 birds at, at 24 nests. Um, and I want to get a perspective of, of what these birds are, their hybrids. Um, so to do that, you can't just look phenotypically. Um, because they're a hybrid, they all look pretty much the same. You guys saw how it is to, to tell part two pure species. Um, so I'm going to have to do that genetically. Now, how do you do that? You could sequence them. Um, but unfortunately, that's really expensive. And I have a, a pretty large sample size. So how do we do that affordably, quickly, easily, and enough to give us a good uh, perspective on what we're doing? So I'm going to talk a little bit about that procedure, which is something that was new to our lab this year and um, we had really good success with. So first we, we have these blood samples that we've taken. We extract the DNA. Um, and then we went to that data set, those 12 birds that Cornell had sequenced for us earlier. And um, we looked at them. And so uh, 
Katie was so good to introduce, introduce us to the, the idea of uh, single nucleotide polymorphism earlier. So I was, I was happy to see, to, to see uh, SNPs get a little bit of a shout out in an earlier presentation. But basically to explain, you guys all know your DNA is made up of AGCs and Ts. And there's these long strands. And so for 99.9% .9 of the DNA in these two birds, it's the same. They're, they're very closely related. Um, they, can, they can interbreed and produce fertile offspring. They're very similar. But at certain points along, these D, along this, this A, G, C, and T, it'll differ by one letter. Black caps will have an A, and Carolina will have a G, let's say. And so what we can do from those sequence data is find those sites, those loci, in that column right there, those SNP loci, and then find a restriction enzyme that'll cut the DNA at that place. So we'll say, you know, this, black, this Carolina has an A there. And this restriction enzyme is going along looking for a sequence with an A, and if it sees an A, it'll cut right there. If it sees a black cap, it's got a G, it's not going to cut. It's just going to keep going. So what we do is we take the DNA that we've extracted. We amplify it using a reaction called the polymerase chain reaction by using primers that flank the region that we're looking for. And so we have a small piece of DNA with that SNP isolate. Then we digest it with that restriction enzyme. So now I've got a bunch of DNA. It might be cut, it might be not. So how do we, how do we look at it? That's what's right here on the left. Um, Nick also has introduced us to the concept of gels earlier on today, but this is a little bit different from that Western body he was talking about. This is an agarose gel, and what we do is very similar, though. We load these wells with those DNA. They're stained, and then um, since your DNA is, is polar, it has a charge. If we run an electrical current through it, the DNA will move. But since these fragments are all different sizes, they're going to move at different rates. So what happens? So if it cut, both strands of your DNA are cut in half. You have two smaller pieces. So the DNA will run down, and there are two different sizes, and then it will be further down the gel. So whenever we see that two-band characteristic, here, 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 those are pure Carolina. On both strands, it's cut. We see a pure Carolina gene. Now say it didn't cut. It's, it's homozygous black cap at that locus. It has can completely black cap. No cut. Just get a big, firm band right there. No digestion. But since we're in the hybrid zone, a lot of these birds are interbreeding, right? So what if it has one strand that's Carolina, one strand that's not? It's called a heterozygote, and you'll get one band that hasn't digested for that one strand, and then another one that has. So two bands right there, you'll get three characteristic bands. So it's really a really simple, elegant way of determining what your, uh, your individual looks like from a genotypic perspective without having to sequence the whole bird. It's, it's um, relatively fast. Uh, definitely still a lot of lab time spent in there, but uh, it's, it's a really great way for us to use the tools that we have to get a good result. So now we look at that across four loci. We assign a hybrid index based on an average of the genotypes that we're seeing to each individual. So what do we find there? These are our hybrid index counts. Um, it's a range from 1.0, means it's a pure Carolina, between uh, 0.5 and 1.0, and then a hybrid index at 0.5. So we found that 38 of our 48 34 of our 48 individuals were pure Carolina, which fits with what we are seeing in those sequence data. But it definitely suggests, given that you know 30% of these birds retain some black cap genetic characteristic, that hybridization isn't complete. It's not a completely Carolina population like we first thought. Um, so once I got those data, my next natural question was, is there any correlation between what the bird sings and its hybrid index? Um, so we use regression analysis to look at that. Um, and what you're seeing here is on the x-axis, 
the male hybrid index, so from around 0.5 to 1 is what we saw. And then on the, the y-axis, we assigned um, each bird, whether or not it was bilingual, as 0 or 1. 0, no, a bilingual 1. And we did that for about six different song categories, say, sings A and nothing else, or sings B and nothing else. So, and we re tested regression against all of this. But what we ran into was that since the vast majority of our birds were 1, the, the skew to that side of the graph didn't allow us to find a significantly, statistically significant relationship there. So then what would, what did we do? We then decided to kind of reassess and approach it using chi-square analysis, um, where we uh, basically assign whether or not these birds are bilingual and if they're a hybrid or not. So two binary pieces of information there. And, and those uh, is just one of the six or so categories that we tested. And unfortunately, right there, we also didn't see a statistically significant infer, uh, relationship between the hybrid index and what it's saying. So what, it, what does that tell us? Um, so in terms of the song relationships, it doesn't look like there's a direct relationship between hybrid index and the repertoire. But it does tell us that there's still some black cap characteristic left in this hybrid zone. We're seeing all three chickadee song types as well as, the uh, as, well as these hybrid zones at Noli Forest. Um, it also shows that even though maybe most of the black cap characteristic of this hybrid zone has moved northward, that we're still seeing a pretty high incidence of black cap song, um, though the prevalence is Carolina. Um, and then also that this idea of the movement of behavioral phenotype behind the genetic front is something that's pretty interesting and that can be uh, applied to other moving animal hybrid zones. So, what we're trying to do now is actually replicate a lot of the work that I did northward. That's more inside the hybrid zone to see if we can get some interesting results there. Um, and we're looking forward to do, doing that work uh, this summer at Hawk Mountain. I'm going to kind of pass the baton on downward. Um, but so I guess before um, I conclude and ask for questions, I just, I just have to, to uh, say thank you to a few people. Um, of course, uh, Falvey Library for the award and, and uh, for putting together this event today. I also want to thank Jane and Kurf. haven't worked with uh, Kurt and Catherine as much yet, but for getting me started with a VERF grant all those years to get me uh, hooked on research. Got to thank Matt Miller for, for coming in. Uh, he's a postdoc here who started last semester and um, taught me a lot of lab techniques that I hadn't known and really helped shepherd this along. And uh, once again, I got to thank Dr. Curry. Allow me to wax a little nostalgic here. And all the way back in January, uh, we were working on a lot of these techniques. You know, for the first time, I hit go on that imager, and I got one of those really nice pictures. And it really made me think back to how, you know, I was there from the moment that bird started excavating that nest to banning it, to taking its blood sample, to extracting the DNA, to amplifying it, to digesting it, and finally seeing what it was at that genetic level. And that was something that really kind of blew me away. And that would not be possible without Dr. Curry and helping me along. So. It's definitely the highlight of my undergraduate career, and I really got to thank from that. So happy to take questions, and thank you guys for coming out and listening. So from, from a linguistic perspective, in, in humans, you know, languageability is, is innate, but kind of what language you speak as well, right? Mm -hmm. is, is that the argument as well? Or is that kind of where you're getting at with, with the birds? Is that yeah. the fact that they can chirp is 
innate, but what they are chirping maybe is influenced by their environment. Yeah, it's definitely song is a learned behavior, and um, one of the things that we're actually looking about is kind of the capacity for learning there. Um, something that we've observed um, and we're still working on substantiating is I didn't see any birds in this hybrid zone that sang all three. They'd sing a combination of two of the three, and all three were sung, but, but in different. Yeah. And what's, what's great is actually another one of Dr. Curry's former uh, thesis students here, master's students, is now working on her doctoral degree at Ohio State in their language of avian acoustics there. And she's seen, she's actually raising these birds from a young age and subjecting them to different repertoires to kind of see what they learn and how they learn it. And she's seeing a, a similar thing right now. So um, be on the lookout for more, for more research there. Um, she's actually coming up, I think, next week, right, Dr. Curry? Today. Um, and she's going to be... Looking at some of my recordings, she's also going to be going in the field, taking more recordings, and, and really building on this body of knowledge. So it's great to be working with somebody um, with this as well. So yeah, great question. Hi. Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, so actually, what we'll do is um, we're we're monitoring all these nests throughout the spring. Um, you know, every day we're out there checking, seeing where they're along. And once they've, you know, established a nest, are, are there for, for good, and, and we're not likely to scare them off or anything, we can, we can misnet the birds. There's just a, a light net. doesn't hurt them or anything. Don't worry. Um, and we'll take the bird. We'll band it just so uh, we can identify it when we're doing those experiments based on the color bands. And uh, while we're there, there's a, a vein right under the wing. You can just prick the vein, take a small blood sample. does nothing to hurt the bird. It's totally fine. Um, and then we'll... we'll Put that in a, a field buffer, throw it in the freezer, a fridge, pardon, and then uh, we we just have it for. We have blood samples taken 17 years ago that are that are good. We can still extract DNA from and, and have it there to, to look at those things. Yeah. Dr. Curry is is the best at it. Uh, <laughs> he's got a lot of experience. Yeah. <laughs> Ten thousand hours thing. Dr. Olson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and you alternated between song types. Did you also alternate a particular song type between the two speakers? What it, what it would do is, um, so I'd have one, it'd play at one speaker to the other, and then it would switch. switch. Yeah. So it, it would, could mimic that the, the bird singing that, that you're mimicking, is actually moving around. Yeah, I guess so. Thread or whatever? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, you mentioned climate change just briefly. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you see any contributing to extrapolating some of this data about the hybrids to the effects of climate change on other species and on humans? Um, I mean, I think the the big relationship that we see for us is this: the zone is moving northward, and you know, it's a, it's a huge, it's just another piece in a in a really big body of data that I think um, you know is pretty irrefutable at this point. Uh, and in terms of actual effects on this hybrid zone, in terms of, I'm sure you, you'll see similar things in, in other north-south species and probably moving as ranges move northward as temperatures get higher. Um, in terms of actual, like the effect on the bird itself, I'm not so sure in terms of the interface with, with humans, but definitely I think that it's, you know, 
just another piece of, of the puzzle there and showing how across species, across environments and across um, different geographic ranges that, that affects are happening. Important to, to know. Do what you can about. Yeah, I'm sorry if that was not a great answer. Jane? So how is this going to inform your work on Boston? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that that Dr. Curry pointed out is is um, I think I've had to learn to be pretty autonomous during this in terms of when you're alone in the field you know there's nobody looking over your shoulder and Matt knows it's it's an active discipline to get in the lab Matt told me whenever you think you're going to be done for the night you're about to go in do one more thing and get one more thing done I think that's been a really great uh, lesson in work ethic and discipline and, and that's just one of the great things about working in the lab is you get to learn. Uh, responsibility, autonomy of your own project, and I'm sure all the other scholars here know that that's going to help them no matter what they end up doing. So, I, you know, really grateful for that opportunity. All right. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Congratulations to all of our scholars. And, and we're very pleased and honored to say that we have uh, the president of the university, Father Peter, to close our uh, Falvey Scholars event 2015. Thank you. I, I want to talk about John because that's the only one I heard. Uh, <laughs> John, I did have a question. Is is this really a chickadee? Um, you know, we, we try to try to keep the birds alive and not stuff them. So I, I tried to figure out how this thing. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to work. Yeah. Uh, scale models. <laughs> uh, I'm sure all of you were brilliant, uh, and that's why you kept this audience intrigued through that whole thing. But this is a very important program because you know, it just reiterates what we try to do. And this morning, um, I've, uh, I've been at three different events that are dealing with scholarship. So uh, in one form or another, from the business school presenting to Vanguard their work in marketing uh, and what they've learned about marketing, to the sociology department that is hosting a big uh, undergraduate research, uh, research seminar today over um, in Bodley, and to this event in Falvey. Um, where you have all presented your research, and it's very fascinating. So, you know, we, we talk so much about Villanova, about um, trying to push education forward, or push knowledge forward. And you come to a university uh, to really not only learn something, but to give something back in some way or another. And to take the knowledge that you have, or what you've learned from professors, and you're joining an effort with a professor, and to really kind of contribute to the and that's what it means to be entitled to Not something that is just simply, I regurgitate something else that somebody has taught me, but actually I take what they have taught me and I make it something different. So congratulations. I'm sure you were all brilliant, right? You want to give me a one-minute summary? I'm sorry I wasn't here, but I was at Vanguard, and I was at Barclay, and I was at a lot of other things. So, But congratulations, and John, 
I think you did a really good job. Between the sketch and right before you. So congratulations. All of you.